Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see in here. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 31, The Leap Home. October. No, November. Seed corn. And where there's seed corn, there's pheasants. Oh boy. Sam, you scared 10 years out of me. Not old dad. You look just the way I remember you. What, since you left for school this morning? I love you, Dad. I'm 16 and I'm home and my dad's alive. I know, kid, I know. Al, listen, um, I don't want to be out of here. Sam. My dad dies of a coronary in 72. That gives me three years to prevent it. And and Katie, she elopes with Chuck, somebody, an abusive alcoholic. And Tom. Tom comes home for Thanksgiving before shipping out to Vietnam. God, Al, I can save Tom. Sam, (laughs) tell him you made it up. I can't. Sam, you're not changing anything. Your father still dies in 72. Tom still gets killed in Vietnam. And Katie still marries Chuck. You okay now? You're not changing their future, Sam. All you're doing is making their present miserable. Okay, I made it up. I know it hurts, Sam. But you did the right thing. I always do the right thing. And what does it get me? And why can't I save strangers and not the people I love? I don't know. Well, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to do it. You hear that? Whoever you are, wherever you are, I'm not doing it anymore. I quit. Sam! Hello and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Quantum Leap Podcast. How are we already at Season 3? It's crazy. We have a great show today. Our guest today on the Quantum Leap Podcast, the one and only Sam Beckett himself, Scott Pacula. I'm like grinning from ear to ear right now. I'm so excited. That's a huge get. Uh, yeah. (laughs) I'm very excited to talk to Scott. It's amazing. We have the star of Quantum Leap on the Quantum Leap podcast. How often does that happen? Well, not even that. You're a huge Star Trek fan, too, and he was in Enterprise as a captain. Captain Archer, I know. It's crazy. 
but it's true. And that's coming up later in the show. That's pretty cool. Heather, first impressions of The Leap Home. I liked this one. I'm kind of surprised that they did two episodes back to back that were so emotional. We had MIA with Al and then we had The Leap Home with Sam. So it's like it was weird that they did that kind of together. But maybe to prove the point that if Al couldn't change his past, then Sam couldn't change his. And I know it was season end and season beginning, but still in the lineup, it was it hit close to home with them. A little bit. It seemed to be instantaneous for Sam to leap from MIA to the leap home. But we don't know that because Al was having a rough time at the end of MIA. And at the beginning of the leap home, he seems okay. So I think it's been some time for him. Yeah, and he was back to making sexual innuendos five minutes into the episode, so... So either it's been some time or he just uh, used his coping mechanism to get back on track and, you know, he was a soldier, so he can probably do that. He did seem a little heartless, I thought, in this episode, but Sam kind of acted the same way to him. Like, I feel like Sam and MIA was a little cold to Al when it was like, sorry, can't change your past. Go say goodbye to her. Like he tried to be nice about it, but he still was a little cold, I thought. And I got the same exact vibe from Al in this episode where he was like, stop thinking about your family, go to the basketball practice and leap. And he was trying to treat it like a normal leap. And Sam was like, no, I'm just going to stay here. And I I like that Sam had that breakdown moment. And I like that he had to say, you know, fine, I made it up. I mean, I don't like that. I mean, it was just a really rough moment, but it was another like raw emotion episode. Of course, it wasn't as raw as MIA because he wasn't there for like the events of his brother dying or his dad dying. Like he just knew it was like impending doom. So I don't think it was as emotional as MIA, but it was still an emotional episode. Normally, We don't have very many emotional episodes. We usually have like a heartfelt one and then we have a lighthearted one. And so got to be coming up on like a lighthearted episode soon, right? (laughs) Maybe the next one. Who knows? Probably not. (laughs) Um, MIA and The Leap Home were written by Donald P. Bellazario. And maybe that's why they were both so emotional. And I'm sure it's like you said, the season ender and the season opener. They want to do something big. They want to wow the audience. I think that has a lot to do with Sam going home because they want to get viewers back that might have taken the summer off from Quantum Leap and not know when it's coming back. But if they see the commercial that Sam leaps home, that'll stick in their mind and say, I have to watch that. Do you think that being that Donald Belisario wrote these episodes, do you think that he liked writing more of their stories? I mean, because when Sam leaps into different lives, it's not really about Sam and Al. That's kind of like an underlying current. And it's about like the current leap. But when it's about them, the whole episode, like it's a completely different kind of episode. And do you think that Donald Belisario, because he created the concept and he created the characters, I'm assuming. (laughs) I know I'm sure a lot of people had input, but it was ultimately his baby. So do you think that he kind of it was easier for him to write the episodes about the two main characters? I think him being executive producer and creator, he gets to save the juicy stuff for himself. Yeah. I think that had a lot to do with it. He's like, uh, no, don't do that story yet. I'm, I want to do that story. Because he has dibs, really. Well, yeah. But I, I would see, like, if it was my project, I would want to write about 
these kind of leaps myself because we got to see Sam's childhood for the first time. I know that he described it in the beginning, the second leap he did out of Genesis. It was like the baseball leap, the in-between leap at the end of the first episode. We kind of got a description of his dad dying and so a little foreshadowing maybe, but it was nice to, to see what his mom looked like and it was nice to have Sam like in his home element. That was really nice to get a little bit more backstory. I love hearing more about our main characters. That's really when the show is at its best, I think. Another thought on this episode, though, Sam's family, they had such tragedy with his dad dying, his brother dying, his sister getting abused. The emotion that his mom had to go through (laughs) to lose her son, then lose her husband, and then watch her daughter go through that like that's it's crazy and where's her son this whole time right she lost her other son maybe because he's in the project quantum leap waiting room this whole time now did al like make phone calls like so sam's time traveling and uh we'll give you a call when and if he gets back or is that just like nobody knew i I really don't know how it works something interesting to find out i Hmm. like to ask the unanswerable questions (laughs) oh i'm sure it's answerable somebody will answer it please just like what happens when John Lennon does release Imagine? What what does his little sister think? I'm sure we're going to talk about that and a lot of other stuff after the episode recap. This is season three, episode one, The Leap Home, written by Donald P. Belisario and directed by Joe Napolitano. Original broadcast date, September 28th, 1990. This is a leap unlike any other. When Sam leaps in, he is crouching in a field of seed corn and immediately realizes from the height of the crops and the smell that it must be November. He also realizes that there must be pheasants around and when he flushes one out, he pretends to shoot it. He is being watched by three high school cheerleaders who giggle and ask if he got it. Sam recognizes one of the cheerleaders, Lisa, who asks him to go with her to the gobbler hop after the game. In shock, Sam runs off, but immediately recognizes his home street and runs straight for his family's farmhouse. He gets a glimpse of his reflection in the window and sees none other than himself at 16 years old. A woman, who Sam recognizes as his mother, Thelma, opens the door and exclaims that Sam scared 10 years off her. She starts calling for everyone to come in for supper, and on the verge of tears, Sam immediately hugs her and goes to find his father. Sam's father, John, is milking cows in the milking shed. He sternly tells Sam he shouldn't have stayed back after basketball practice to keep shooting hoops when he has chores to do and to not push himself too hard. He can't expect to play as well as Tom in his senior year because Tom was 18 and Sam is only 16 and still growing. After telling his father it won't happen again, Sam shocks John by telling him that he loves him and gives him a hug. Sam's sister, Katie, sees this as she walks in and thinks Sam is just buttering up his father so that he can have Tom's bedroom, which she also wants. Even though John thinks Sam should have it, Sam tells Katie she can, and anything else she wants, and carries her off in a playful hug. At dinner, Sam shovels the food down because it's all very good, and John thinks Sam is trying to bulk up for the game. Sam, remembering how the game originally went, absentmindedly says that Bentleyville still beat them, then covers by saying that happened last year. 
John says the key will be stopping No-No's Pruitt, who scored 20 points against them in the last season, and whom Sam says is unstoppable and six foot four, answering Al, who just walked through the wall and asked how tall he is, and lost part of his nose in a reaping accident. Katie also heard from one of her friends that No-No's has it in for Sam because he is sweet on Lisa, who likes Sam, and teases Sam about running away when she asked him out. Sam leaves to do his chores, really talk to Al, even putting off Peach Cobbler, and Thelma has a funny feeling. This worries John because last time she had a bad feeling, they had a massive flood that could float the Ark the year Katie was born, and they think Katie was God making it up to them. Even though Al ribs Sam for running away from Lisa, Sam couldn't be happier at being back in Elk Ridge, Indiana with his dad alive. He already knows it's 1969, sometime near Thanksgiving, because 1969 was his senior year and they always opened the basketball season against Bentleyville, which Al says is why Sam left there. Originally, Sam's team lost that game, or rather, as Sam puts it, he lost the game because of how badly No-No's beat him on offense, defense, and just plain beat him, and spent many nights wishing he could replay the game. Al says, you just got your wish, and that that game was a turning point for a lot of people. If they had won that game, they would go on to be state champions. His coach would have accepted a position at the University of Iowa and go on to the NBA. Some of his teammates would get basketball scholarships and become doctors. But realizing that if he helps the team beat Bentleyville, he would leap out and he doesn't want to leave. Sam thinks if he stays, he can help his father live a healthier lifestyle to prevent the heart attack that kills him. He can stop Katie from marrying Chuck, an abusive alcoholic who beat her, and he could stop Tom from going to Vietnam, thus saving his life. Al doesn't think it's possible and reminds Sam that they tried that sort of thing with Beth and that some things aren't meant to be. But Sam thinks it's his reward for putting right so many wrongs so far and still wants to try it. The next morning, Sam causes an argument with his father because he has made a healthy, well-balanced breakfast with decaffeinated coffee, which John does not like the look of. Sam tells John that his lifestyle promotes cardiovascular disease, which makes Thelma think Sam will be a doctor, and that John has to stop eating foods high in cholesterol and saturated fats, stop smoking, and start exercising. But John believes he is healthy, works hard, and will continue to eat what he raises, or dairy products. John goes to buy more cigarettes, which Sam has burnt along with the trash, and Thelma tells Sam that he had been very mean to his father. Katie thinks it's because John is the same age his father was when he died. Thelma agrees to cut some fat out of their meals after Thanksgiving, but tells Sam not to remind John about his father's death again. Sam thinks he will change their futures, but Al tells Sam he has to get to basketball practice. Sam doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to leap, but agrees when Al tells him he will get to see his old friends again, but says he's not going to play in the game. Al says if Sam really believes he is here to help his family, he shouldn't worry about leaping if they win the game. At basketball practice, the coach has organized to have someone bigger and uglier train with them to get them over the intimidation of No-No's Pruitt. The man, who is wearing an ape mask, has great skills, and Sam thinks he knows him. When he playfully hits Sam in the head with the basketball, Sam immediately knows it's his brother Tom and pulls him in for a hug. Tom and Sam go hunting in the cornfield, and Tom tells Sam about his training, being pushed well past his limits, 
and never thinking past the evolution he is in. Sam says he knows how that feels, which makes Tom laugh and asks, what evolution are you in now? Sam replies that he's trying to figure out how to stop his brother from going to Vietnam. Tom is shocked, having never thought of Sam as a hippie, burning his draft card and yelling, hell no, we won't go. But Sam says Vietnam is a losing battle that's just going to drag on for a few more years, taking more lives from both sides with them, and the North eventually swallowing up the South anyway. Tom wonders why Sam is being so unpatriotic, and Sam says that if his brother's life is in danger, it should mean something. Tom believes that Vietnam is America pushing its own limits, and that he took an oath to God and his country. Now having realized that Sam thinks he's not coming back, Tom tells him that neither of them can see the future, but Sam confesses that he can, correctly predicting that Tom will flush out two birds, hit the first, and miss the second, stunning Tom. Sam's parents and Tom have a doctor examine Sam. The doctor believes that Sam is simply under a lot of stress, doing his senior year so young and having numerous college offers, and out of fear of losing Tom, his mind has created a creative way of handling it, believing he can see the future. The doctor advises the family to simply play along and that he will outgrow it. Katie plays along too, asking Sam about the future. He tells her about some of the new slang, thereby starting the use of the word awesome, and tells her to stay away from a guy named Chuck, who she's going to elope with. He gets frustrated, realizing she's just humoring him. So she asks him about the Beatles and if Paul is dead, which she heard when playing the White Album backwards. He tells her Paul's not dead and that after the Beatles split up, he forms Wings. She then asks about John Lennon, as he's her favorite. And after being told by Al not to tell her about his murder, says that John writes his favorite song, Imagine. He starts playing it and Katie is clearly into it, but starts crying, having realized that because the song doesn't exist yet, that Sam actually is telling the truth and that Tom actually is going to die. She runs to her parents and Tom and tells them what happened. Al tells Sam that nothing is changing except making their present miserable and that he should just say he made it all up. Reluctantly, he agrees and runs off in tears. Al tries to comfort Sam, telling him he did the right thing. Sam says he always does the right thing and wonders why he can save strangers, but not the people he loves. So angrily, he tells God, time, fate, or whatever that he quits. In Sam's fit of it's not fair, Al tells Sam he thinks it's damn fair, wishing that he could have a few days to be with his departed loved ones again, to talk to them and tell them how much he loves them. This snaps Sam out of it and he has a very happy Thanksgiving with his family. After dinner, he and Tom shoot some hoops and Tom teaches him how to do a jump hook shot and says it will impress the hell out of Lisa. He also tells Sam that they have to beat Bentleyville. He wants his revenge as they were the only team his own team didn't beat. Sam promises that he will win the game on the condition that on April 8th, Tom will crawl into a deep dark bunker and stay there, to which Tom agrees. At the game, Sam is fouled and winded by no-nos. Tom helps him back up and Sam reminds him to keep his promise. Sam makes his free throw shots, leaving his team within one point of victory. In the last few seconds, Sam gets the ball and makes a jump hook shot against No-Nos, scoring the goal and winning the game for Elkridge. Al tells him that his team goes on to be state champions and that everything plays out as Ziggy had predicted. 
Al stalls when asked about Tom, but eventually tells him that Tom is still killed in Vietnam. Sam tries to call for Tom, but leaps at the same time. Finding himself with his brother in Vietnam. And that episode recap was by Hayden. Thank you, Hayden. Thanks, Hayden. Great job, my friend. Can I just say I love this episode? I love most of them, but this is a really good one for me. I see it as like a part two of a trilogy that wasn't really meant to be or is not an official trilogy. Later on in Quantum Leap, there is an official trilogy, which is awesome. But I see MIA and The Leap Home Part 1 and The Leap Home Part 2 as a trilogy, and I really enjoy it. And usually the middle part of a trilogy isn't so good, but this one is. I really liked this episode. It was really good. It's funny, uh, you, you mentioned this when we were watching it the last time. In the saga cell, Deborah Pratt as Ziggy says, hoping each time the next leap would be the leap home. Which is funny because it's, you know, the leap home. So he finally does leap home. I wonder if they uh, change that in the opening. I don't think that's what they meant in the opening about that. I think they mean leaping back into his own aura in his own time, 1999. Party like it's 1999. So I think that's what they mean. But this is really close. It's like when sliders get to that world where everything is the same except the Golden Gate Bridge is blue. I'm hoping that if I ever make it to San Francisco, it is actually blue and I'm in an alternate Earth. Wouldn't that be interesting? What would your brain think about that? I would freak out. I don't know. I just know don't oil any hinges. That's all I'm saying. I want to go to a gobbler hop. I just think that's (laughs) a really awesome name. Like I feel like, I don't know if it was Quantum Leap writers or somebody from the past like somebody had had that as their at their school, but I feel like my school wasn't creative enough to make a gobbler hop. Like that's just a cool name. I have no idea what a gobbler is. I know the Gooky Gobbler is a turkey mascot for wrestling in the 80s. So gobbler must have something to do with Thanksgiving and turkey since this is around Thanksgiving. But I don't know exactly Thinking what it's it a is. themed dance. Hmm. But I just thought it was a cool name. Like the gobbler hop. I don't know. <laughs> this is really cool. <laughs> the things that I find amusing. Did you like seeing Sam's brother finally after we've heard a lot about him in previous episodes? Yeah, he looked completely different than I thought. I don't know if he looks like Sam, but I liked him and I liked his personality and he seemed like a good fit. And then, of course, second, third, fourth time I saw the episode, I just knew that that was Sam's brother. But yeah. Because we, we've heard about him in a couple different episodes, uh, Disco Inferno. I know they've mentioned him before, but yeah, it was nice to finally meet the brother. He really did seem like Sam's older brother to me. I think the casting was really great in this episode and the mom as well. And the dad did great. He looked a lot like Scott. Yeah, had the same mannerisms and everything. He he really, like if Scott Bakula had a dad, I'm sure he does. But uh, <laughs> If... if. <laughs> if. <laughs> What did you think about them casting Scott Bakula as his own father? I feel like it's risky. Right? Like today, they could just either CG it or they have really awesome makeup artists. But it was good, but it, it was definitely probably a risky move back then. Old age makeup is always, always, always hard. We watch a lot of Face Off and they always say that. And, you know, you always hear Michael Westmore talking about how old age makeup is so hard. And I think they did really good here. We're watching the uh, remastered version for Netflix for the purposes of this episode. And 
it looks really good. Yeah, I mean, if I didn't know, I I mean, I'm sure we could tell by his voice and, you know, you can still kind of see that it's Scott Bakula. But I think that's the point. I mean, it was like instead of finding a guy that could be his dad, he just played his own dad. Now, was that Scott's choice or was that like whose idea was it for him to play his own dad? When I spoke with Mr. Belisario, he told me that it was something that Scott wanted to do and they thought it was risky. But if anybody could do it, Scott could do it. And I think he pulled it off really well. Yeah. In the first scene where they're on either side of the cow, I mean, the first scene that they're together, that's the only time that I'm like, wow, he's playing his dad. The rest of the episode, I'm just like, that's his dad. So they did really good. Scott did amazing. Not <laughs> that we would doubt that because he's always amazing. But That man never phones anything in. He's no. a hard worker. Yeah. And you know what I liked a lot? I remember watching this originally on NBC in front of a, I was going to say wood grain TV, but it was a wood TV. <laughs> it's quite a while ago. A floor model where you had a, if you're a kid, sit on the floor in front of the TV to watch it. And I remember back then seeing the different lines where they did the two shots and both of them were Scott Bakula. I remember seeing poorly hidden special effects lines separating the screens. And now watching this HD version... I didn't see those at all. So even though I gave him a little bit of strife for not repairing the film scratches in Seabride, they did a really good job of recompositing the shots if they did for The Leap Home Part 1. Yeah, that's more technical than I'm used to. <laughs> did you notice where the screen split at all? Not at all. Yeah, they did a really good job. Yeah. The only uh, bad kind of thing I saw was in the beginning of the episode, when you see Sam Beckett's childhood home, it's kind of like the house has a film shake one way and the background has a film shake the other way. So it's a little out of place, but it's not bad. But if you're looking for it, you can see it. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> i watched it quite a few times. So I think my favorite thing about this episode is the look on Scott's face is like a young kid, which is crazy because... He's played so many different characters. And I know I've talked about this before when he's played younger roles, but he definitely has like a childish demeanor. And I really liked that in this episode. And his facial expressions were just amazing, like they always are. But like how lovingly he looked at his mom and like how he interacted with his sister. And just he was really into his 16 year old role. He played it so well. He was very physical in this episode, ran and, and was playing basketball and stuff like that. And you couldn't tell that he wasn't a 16-year-old kid playing basketball, which is awesome. Against 35-year-old high school students. As they always are. <laughs> uh, we learned uh, when we spoke with Deborah Pratt in the commentary for Another Mother, why? Because it's cheaper and you have him on set for longer. So I guess you got to just do what you got to do. I know some leapers would disagree with me, but my theory of the Swiss cheese brain is... His brain is Swiss cheesed and it has holes in it. And I believe that those holes are filled in with the thoughts and brain of the leapy. Are you thinking like physical holes or like eh, metaphysical? Let's metaphysical say. holes. Okay. I was thinking like actual holes in his brain and I was like, that sounds painful. If the brain was a complex computer, some of the programs aren't there. Corrupted. The program's also filled in by the previous program in those spots. So to me, Sam Beckett, as an adult, his brain with Swiss cheese has holes in it and are filled in with a 16-year-old Sam Beckett. So, and I think Scott acted that beautifully. Oh, yeah. I noticed one thing, too. They 
his clothes were a little loose on him to make him seem almost smaller. That was right. a good trick. And he was clean shaven. He had a haircut. Because sometimes he's looking pretty shaggy. Sometimes. As do I. Yes. And it was a good move to cast his brother as taller than him because if it was the same height or smaller, you wouldn't buy him as an older brother so much. And, I mean, he was 16, so when his mom looks up at him, it wasn't that unbelievable because a 16-year-old kid is tall. I know both my brothers are tall, and they've been like that since high school. So it wasn't that unbelievable. I mean, he's on the basketball team, which, sorry to change the subject, but... I thought he was like a nerdy kid who never left the classroom. Like that was just my, I don't know if that was just my opinion of him, but he's like on the basketball team having girls ask him out. And I thought he was like nerdy nerd kid. He was still shy about girls asking him out apparently because he ran away. And wasn't he like in college at like 12 or something? Like I swear that there's just like inconsistencies here. There are some definite inconsistencies in his timeline. Because I swear Al said he was like in college at 12 or something. Wasn't that mentioned that he was like 14? I but say. here he's like, what, 16? And he's definitely in high school. And But he's graduating he, soon at 16. But going to also his parents kind of act like he's a brat. <laughs> and, a nor- and a normal kid like, oh, he's going to be a doctor. He's so smart. But uh, who knows? It doesn't take away from the episode. It's still a really good episode. I just was like. Hey, he like played sports and girls like him and he's wearing a Letterman jacket. And I feel like that does not scream nerd to me. I really think it should have been the debate team and not the basketball team. But that might not have been as exciting or the chess team or the mathletes or something. Yeah, that probably wouldn't have grabbed most of the audience. Like they wouldn't have been able to relate as much, I think. What did you think about the whole basketball part of the episode? For me, that was the one part I could take or leave. Well, it was a way for him and his brother to connect. I feel like that because that's how they brought his brother into the episode and they were practicing and then it had the whole revenge deal that they made. And so for that purpose, it worked really well for me. I feel like it was a bonding thing for him and his brother. And maybe that's why he was into basketball because his brother was into basketball. His mom did say he tried to do everything his brother did, followed him around like a puppy. So I could see that. Right. So... Maybe he would have fit better in the mathletes, but he did basketball because of his brother. He probably did both. He probably did. I didn't hate the short, short. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's. I think that kind of thing is always in that time period of movies and episodes, either football or basketball. It's like there wasn't a lot to do back then. Whenever you're in a high school scene, there's always like some sort of cheerleaders and high school sports. I feel like that's such a big theme for, you know, like 60s, 50s and 60s like movies. Almost like how do we say high school? Yeah, like it needed to have more high school to it or something. So he needed to have a sport or something. I feel like it was just like added in to give him a mission in quotes. Yeah, I definitely feel bad for him when he says, how come I can fix everybody else's problems and save everybody else, but I can't save my own family. That was pretty bad. Yeah. But I like that he had that breakdown. He quit because, yeah. for the second time. It's not an easy job. I don't think he has a choice. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> the thing. He's like working in China. He quits, but they ignore him. They're like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, and you, so anyway, you have to go working. to the basketball game <laughs> and you got to win. I felt like he was like uh, running in a holodeck. No matter how long he ran, he was still in the same spot, so it didn't matter. Yeah. And the way Al was like, are you okay now? Did you feel better? Feel better? Did that help? 
which that right there felt a little heartless to me. But there was a nice recovery after that where he was like, I would give anything to spend more time with my family. And I kind of thought of you when that happened. I'm sure you connect a lot with this episode. And what would you do? Would you try and and lecture your dad? Would you tell him like on this day, you're going to go get this done and, and do this instead and don't do this? And what would you do? Would you tell your mom to what would you do? Would you try and change it? Would you just be there and hang out with them? Yes. All of that and none of that. Because as I think I've said before, after you have a child, you don't want to time travel back before that happens. Because then you might not have that child. Well, I just mean if you're in that situation. Right. So being Dr. Sam Beckett without a child. Right. And he was trying to save his dad. But your dad and in, in your decision. Oh, sure. Yeah. I would have sent myself a letter, maybe Western Union style. Western Union style. To be delivered at a certain date and on hey, a certain Doc time. Brown. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I definitely see what Sam's trying to do because he wants to go back home in his own time and his father still be alive. Yeah. And he has a chance to do that. And what he wasn't thinking about and what Al reminded him is who ever would have this chance like he has to see his family again and interact with them and be there for a few days a week. It's an amazing opportunity. Yeah. And to appreciate it. And that's one of the reasons why I love the Thanksgiving dinner scene is because after Al and Sam have that talk, Sam is doing that and appreciating spending time with his family. And you see that smile on his face while they're eating dinner and just having that family time. And I think that was a really nice thing that Sam got to do. I feel like the fact that he said those things, I feel like that should have changed something. Because if his brother dies first, then what? Then they look back and they go, that sucks because he predicted it. Like he said that Tom's going to go to Vietnam and die and we told him that he was out of his mind and here we are burying our son and then like what happens when john lennon releases his brand new single and katie's like i've heard this song before like that's how how does she not remember well imagine is not one of those songs that you're like oh that's a forgetful song like that's a very powerful song like he picked a very specific powerful song so if she heard that again she would definitely recognize it so what happens when john lennon releases that and she hears it all the time on the radio and it's the most popular song at the time i'm sure and the beatles break up and wings and then she meets chuck and it's like yeah we'll try it anyway what i feel like if my daughter came up to me and said you know this is what's gonna happen something's gonna happen to dad this is what's gonna happen i don't think i'd be like now you stop it and be like, wait, maybe we should at least like err on the side of caution. And, and it's not a five-year-old who's making up crazy, there's purple dragons going to fall out of the sky. It's like... Specifically, heart disease and cholesterol right. and smoking. And like, and- your son's going to die at war. Like It's not like crazy it thoughts that... Really must have been a different time back then because, of course, they're smoking and they're going to war and... Katie wears a shirt that says, make love, not war. And she's like, take that off right now, because back then war was good and love was bad. It's very odd. Well, this was the start of Woodstock, right? Yeah. So the start of make love, not war. I think people back then that were called, I guess, doves, I guess I would be one of those. I don't know the exact definition, but people that want peace, 
I guess. They were looked down upon as, like, being bad by the older generation that maybe went through the war. Well, I wonder if, like, people's opinions changed when their kids did die. I mean, like, does your opinion of war change when your kid doesn't come home? You never know. I'm not in that situation, so I can't really speak to that. But I'm very thankful we're not in that situation. We live in a very lucky time right now. The song Imagine, I think, is very appropriate for this episode, and it's the backdrop for my favorite scene of the episode, is where Sam's singing this song to Katie, and halfway through it, Katie's realizing this is a real song, and it's amazing, and there's no way my brother could have made this up. He's telling the truth. Yeah, because she's never heard the song before, and it was too well put together for him to be making it up on the fly. And I'm sure she would have heard him singing it if it was his song, so she was just piecing it all together. And That look of realization on her face and also the look on Al's face probably mourning John Lennon when Sam sang the song and the whole sad situation there. At least he didn't tell her that John Lennon dies too. No, you don't want to do that. It would have been just too much. And I have to really say, Olivia Burnett, amazing actress. Oh, yeah. The camera's on her the whole time he's singing. And to my memory, they don't cut. If they do, Mm -hmm. it's not a lot. But you see her go from happy smiley to realization to a tear coming down her face. And she just did an amazing job. And every time I tear up as well. Yeah, that's a very powerful scene. And it's a great song, and it has a lot to do with war and what this episode and maybe the following episode is about. And that brought up a question in my mind, watching this episode, knowing it was written by Donald Belisario, about when he was writing this, whose voice is Donald Belisario? Is he the pro-war or the anti-war? It's hard to know, because he was in the military, he was a pilot, so he's been there. If anybody has experience in this whole thing, it's him writing this episode. But there's two schools of thought in this episode, one being USA, apple pie, go to war. The other being peace and not war, make love, not war. So I couldn't tell which one Mr. Belisario was in favor of in this episode. Well, I think that's on purpose too. And that's a very sensitive subject that you don't really want to come out on one side of. Now, with his history, he might not be against it but he knows enough about it to represent both sides i think it was done very well oh yeah but the song imagine being in there if you've ever listened to the lyrics it's uh imagine there's no heaven it's easy if you try no hell below us above us only sky imagine all the people living for today so i think what the song says there is life is important and it's very important to love each other and spend your time being happy and doing good and peace. In the moment. Yeah. And um, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. There really isn't countries. If you see the earth from space, it's just land and sea. So people killing each other for it's kind of crazy. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So, you know, he's just looking for peace. And then someone shot him. Yeah, I don't know why that happened. I think that's another episode. Yeah, that's pretty horrible. It's a really good song, and it's beautifully written, and it was great to have Scott singing in an episode, and I love that Al joins in at the end. It's very subtle. Like, they don't show him on camera, but you can hear him singing. That might have also been, like, something that just happened during the taping, and they just kind of kept it in, because it's a very powerful song that you kind of can't help singing along to, and... 
the lyrics are very, very well written and the song is beautiful. So it was, I love that it was in this episode. I think it was very appropriate. Very perfect for this episode. And besides that song, the music for the episode is great. The Sweet from the Leap Home, we play it on our show a lot. It's a great song and just that. That, that twangy song. Yeah, exactly. Reminds me of Fox and the Hound. I can definitely see that. Same type of instruments and the same type of arrangement almost. I haven't seen that movie in, in a really long time, so I could be wrong. But I, I feel like that's where my brain goes when I hear that music. I'm a hound dog. Oh, I love that movie. It's so <laughs> sad, though. Most Disney movies are sad. <laughs> I know we've talked about Olivia Burnett's performance in that scene. And I like that this is her second Quantum Leap episode. I know there's a lot of people who come back, but I like her and I like her in another mother. And I think it's really awesome that she's in this episode, too. She's just perfect for the part. Yeah, I like that she's his sister. Like, that's really cool. I'm a big fan. She's been on Sons of Anarchy most recently, I think, is her latest IMDb credit. So I haven't seen it. I want to check that out. I've heard Sons of Anarchy is really good. Never saw it, but I'll watch that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, casting's good. The writing was good. The music was good. The photography was good. Everything was good. Did you notice that the mirror gags were different? Were they? Sam wasn't in them at all, but it makes him look more realistic, but they like go in, they show Sam looking in the mirror and then they just cut to the mirror and Sam's not in the mirror. I did not. So they don't have to do the over the shoulder thing. Like they did one shot over the shoulder and the mouth was moving the same. And I'm like, oh, cool. And then I realized that it's not Sam. Like there's never a shot where they pull back and you see Sam. I guess because it's been on long enough that you don't need that anymore. But the mirror gags look so good because they don't have to try camera tricks. I think I remember about three of them in this episode. Yeah, but like they were good. They were really good. I didn't notice any flaws in those. Right, because Sam's not in them. Oh, now, now <laughs> I have to watch it again. No, now I get to watch it again. <laughs> but it's that's not a bad thing. It just means that we don't need that anymore. And it just makes it more flawless. So that's a good thing. You know who I feel really bad for? No Noses Kids. Yeah, but they were probably not, maybe it wasn't a good life before? I don't know. Uh, Al called them bulldogs. I don't know why. I don't get it. Did he know something we didn't know? Well, weren't they, isn't that what the team was called? The Tigers and the Cougars was the two teams, which is interesting because they're both cats. Maybe bulldogs are like ugly kids. Yeah, but even if they're ugly, they're still people and now they don't exist. Very sad. Somehow I don't care about that. I don't know, but they said it like it was a good thing. Hey, they didn't have kids. And I was like, somewhere there's a guy playing rock and roll that his dad doesn't have a nose and his hand's disappearing. That's two Back to the Future references. Usually it's Star Trek references. So at least we're moving from one fandom to another. That was something that was left hanging. And I was kind of like, that's that's not good. Well, I think it's more like no nose didn't deserve Lisa. She married someone else. And probably didn't get divorced, and her kids are probably happy now. Okay. And we don't know how things work. They could be the same kids, maybe. Same. I don't know how that works. Personality. I have some little things that I noticed about the episode. They use the last name Lenegro again. I have that written down, too. And I was like, I swear that was in another episode. <laughs> her charm, Professor Lenegro. Yeah, but which is weird because isn't that Sam's. Professor? Right. So So is that like the professor's son or something? Same area, I guess, maybe, unless he went to school far away. But it's weird that he didn't go, oh, yeah, Lenegro's kid. I think the writer might have liked that name. It's one of those names that stand out. It's not like Smitherton 
or something, you know, where you That's wouldn't notice That's kind of it. a weird name, okay. too. Okay, <laughs> well, bad example, but it just stands out. Did you notice when Al was talking to Sam about what happened with Beth, Sam kind of said, Beth? Like, almost like he didn't remember that leap. Like, that leap was Swiss cheesed. That's weird. It was like, Beth? I didn't notice that, actually, but <laughs> that sucks. And my thought on the Swiss cheesing before this was from the original leap that his brain got Swiss cheese, but I think it happens every time. I feel like he would remember Beth. That's so weird that he, like, I don't remember that. Maybe it's like he remembers, but it's in the back of his mind and he's got to think about it, which is weird because for us, it was one leap to the other. Well, plus right now he's smack dab in the middle of his own family life right now. So he was like, what do you mean? Oh, your stuff. <laughs> like he wasn't thinking on the same wavelength, same priority list. So Sam blames himself for losing this game. Now, to make him feel worse about it, Al's like, yeah, because you lost the game, if you win it this time, so-and-so gets this big job and this person his family is so much better and this <laughs> Sam losing this game affects everybody's life negatively. So him winning the game makes everybody else happy, but it doesn't affect his life either way. Like how does that all these people go on to do these great things? All of his entire team, they now have scholarships and all this great stuff going for them now because he won because he blames himself for losing. So Sam won the game Nothing happens differently to Sam's life, but everybody else's is better or worse whether he wins this game. I want to say they tried to explain that in a line when they were talking with the doctor in the kitchen about a basketball scholarship and how Sam didn't need it because he's so smart and he's going to go to MIT instead. So I think Sam's life was on a good trajectory anyway, and I don't think the people at MIT cared about if he won or lost that game. I just feel like... It was such a big deal for the rest of the team. But for Sam, he literally could take it or leave it. Like he just, I just thought that was weird. Because it's his, it's it's his fault. He blames himself. It probably, I mean, it's a basketball game. Things happen. But like, it's his fault. And yet, if he wins, he doesn't get anything good out of it. His brother doesn't live. I think that's the point. It's his job. It's his duty. It's what he signed up for accidentally. <laughs> is That's what he had to do, and it didn't help him out at all. And the things he wanted to do and make right and help out, he couldn't do it. Like, why jump into himself? Why, why jump into Sam Beckett when you're going to change everybody else's life but anybody you care about? Maybe it was a reward, a thank you from... If there is a consciousness leaping him around, and it's not just random, a way to say thank you, have Thanksgiving with your family. I just feel like it, it was the same thing with like, what was her name? Hilda. He leaped in after she died to find her killer. Not before to stop her killer, but after just to find the killer. Like if you're going to, if you're going to leap in and save someone or change the past, you're going to leap in and like save the person, not just find the killer. I think we're trying to find a reason in-universe, and I don't think there's one. The out-of-universe explanation is, of course, because they want to make a special show out of this and make it more heartfelt and make it more emotional. And him being in his family, I think, does that. I'm just here to ask the unanswerable questions. I like that. And I'm okay with not having an answer, but I just want to ask them because those are the things that I watch the show and go, but why doesn't he get 
like a chance here. I think that's why he quit. I would. I don't know how effective that was because he's still, it's only season three out of five, so. All the rest of the future Blu-rays are blank. So we used to say when we would watch Farscape, anytime it would be like, oh, he's probably not going to make it. Like, oh, and all the rest of them are blank. <laughs> Everybody on the ship's going to die and all of the rest of this DVD set is blank. <laughs> it's funny, but it's true. Yeah. And when, when you have three more seasons to come or so and you, you know something's going to work out, hopefully. I think that that applies for all except like Grey's Anatomy. They just like kill off main characters all the time. Babylon 5. Oh, see, uh, so I guess it does it's happen. Done, yeah. Can you tell the difference between decaf and regular coffee? I cannot. Me neither. But I load mine with like sweeteners and it's like it's like a more of a milkshake. I think Sam's dad could tell something was wrong with it because it was one instant and two old. Yeah. And not his normal and brand. Was, and he drank it black. I try flavored coffee all the time. And I think what matters more is the quality of the coffee, not the flavor. Because I'm like, I could drink hazelnut coffee today and French vanilla tomorrow. And by the time I drink it, I don't know. I mean, it might smell differently when it's brewing, but I can't taste the difference. Uh, what's your favorite kind of coffee? Starbucks. No, Pete's coffee. If I'm at home, Pete's coffee is good. I like eight o'clock coffee. That's really good. Sam was talking about how caffeine is bad for your blood pressure. I am a caffeine addict with energy drinks and coffee and tea. Everything I drink, consume has caffeine in it, and my blood pressure is always fine, so... I guess it's if you're more susceptible to it, maybe. I feel like you're also not as old as his dad was. Oh, that could be a contributing so factor. So age, yeah. age might catch up with you eventually, and that might not be a good thing to do anymore. But he also mentions foods high in cholesterol are bad for your cholesterol levels. And that's, I think, we found to be a lie. Inaccurate. <laughs> it is very, very... Very recently, we found that you can eat high cholesterol foods and it doesn't affect your cholesterol. But... At the time this was filmed. That was the truest that they knew. And how many other things do we take for granted now in like 50 years? We're going to be like, really? We did that? So don't smoke. Don't eat foods high in cholesterol. And Which the don't smoke thing yeah, is, is. That's been pretty proven to be bad for you. I like that he says that he's as healthy as an American can be. Because I feel like our country is one of the unhealthiest countries in the world. I don't know if that was meant to be funny, but it's funny now. Yeah. Can you really thrive on whole milk? I don't know about that. If you were a calf, maybe. Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, Seems possible. I don't know. I would be really hungry. I don't know what his point was with that anyway. I feel like he read that in the newspaper somewhere, like the dad in universe. He just read an article about that in the newspaper. It was like, you can thrive off of whole milk. Well, he was a dairy farmer, so he was defending that milk isn't bad for you. Right. Everything in moderation, I think. Well, I think that's the healthiest. Thing. I love that you're talking about moderation. <laughs> I, I have none of that. <laughs> they mentioned cranberries twice in this episode. Canned cranberries. Yeah, the whole cranberry kind, though. I'm a whole cranberry kind of guy. I'm a jelly. But you make your own cranberry sauce. That's good. It's really good with orange juice and Splenda. It's the altered Alton Brown cranberry sauce. So this is a Thanksgiving episode. I love Thanksgiving food so much. When I was pregnant, that's all I wanted. And I was pregnant during the whole part of the year that wasn't Thanksgiving. <laughs> and all I wanted was Thanksgiving food. This coming Thanksgiving, I definitely want peach cobbler. 
I don't usually watch this episode on Thanksgiving, but I think I'm going to add to my Thanksgiving Felicity episodes this episode of Quantum Leap. I feel like we're too busy eating on Thanksgiving to watch. I watch the parade. I don't watch football, though, so maybe that could replace the football. I noticed back then people dressed up for Thanksgiving. I remember when I was a kid, I did. Yeah, I feel like I love yoga pants. And (laughs) when I eat Thanksgiving dinner, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I put my good Star Trek shirt on. I think we dress nice. We just don't dress that fancy. Or schmancy. (laughs) I like the part where Sam's mom said that Katie can help clean the silver. I remember being a kid and you had to clean silverware because you would put it in a drawer and it would tarnish. You had to polish it. With some silver polish and then you ate off of it? Right now that sounds disgusting. I'm glad that that went away. (laughs) There was a lot of talk of patty cake high fives in this episode. Well, I'm assuming Sam started high fives a little early. I looked it up because I never thought about high fives not existing. Like That was just never a thing. Like I Obviously, it had to have been invented at one point. But who was the first guy that was like, yeah, let me smack your hand? Like, it's so weird. But apparently, it started around the 70s. So he wasn't too early. This was 1969. Right. So it wasn't like he was decades ahead of his time. There's two different dates that it could have started. It was both at sporting events and one in 1977 and one in 1978. So it was like after a big win, but there's no real, it wasn't like televised and they're doing this weird thing, smacking their hands. So they don't really know if it was in 1977 or 1978, but it was one of those two years. It took a long time to spread from that game to popular culture. Yeah. I like the evolution of the high five and where it is now. As we learned in Hot Tub Time Machine 2, you don't even have to give a high five. You just say high five now. And I like that much better. I tried it the other day with someone who didn't know that. And I said high five and they put their hand up. So I felt bad because I was leaving them hanging. So I had to do it. But then I explained how we do high five now. When he talks about this other person, that other person is me. (laughs) You mentioned earlier how this episode is a little close to home with Sam's dad dying and stuff. Another reason it rang a bell for me was... Sam's dad has a little bit of a complex about his dad dying so young. And my father had that growing up my whole life. That affected him. His father died very young from smoking and heart disease and the normal thing people died from back then, I guess. And that always frightened him that he wouldn't live long because his dad died early. But my dad lived a lot longer than my grandfather, but I never met my grandfather. And sadly, my child never met my dad. So it seems to be like a pattern, which I hope to stop. Yes, we are all for stopping the patterns (laughs) of our parents. Yes, but it got better every generation. So I'm hoping it'll get even better with my generation. I could definitely understand growing up with a father that had that feeling about their father dying because it's exactly the same thing that my father had. So I recognize that also in Sam's dad. I enjoyed seeing the cornfields. I didn't know there was a difference between corn and seed corn, but I can figure out what they're talking about. They let the corn dry out and go to seed so they can replant corn, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. When I was a kid, I used to go to Maryland and my brother lived there and he had cornfields. So I could go out and run in the corn and just pick an ear off the plant and just eat the raw corn. It was amazing. I just remember doing corn mazes as a kid. That was fun. That's that's what I was thinking of, which this is a very fall episode and we depressingly live in a place where there aren't any seasons and I miss fall. Fall is probably my favorite part of the year. I love that it starts the holidays. I love Halloween and Thanksgiving. 
and food and Christmas. <laughs> but it, the cold weather, I love everything about fall. That was another good thing I liked about this episode that was a fall episode. Sweaters and... How did you feel about the scene between Tom and Sam in the cornfield? I don't like shooting things. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of hunting. But well, I mean, like, I, I wouldn't trust myself with a gun, ever. <laughs> I can hardly butter toast, so not coordinated. So that kind of makes me nervous, like, being next to someone with a gun. Because, like, what if it's an accident? I don't know. So that scene is kind of weird to me, but obviously nothing happened. I feel bad because... I feel like if I was in Sam's shoes, I would want to just scream at him and be like, how are you not listening to me? He would have been so much more effective <laughs> if he just came clean for this episode because he's done it before. Not entirely, but he kind of has hinted that he's not really the person that they think he is. And it would have been so much easier if he just said like, mom and dad, I'm your son from the future. I know this sounds crazy. And like tell them things that there's no denying and be like, listen, you have to, if nothing else, you have to listen to me. But then the show would be really boring. Right. That's the reason it doesn't happen. But if it was really happening, that would be what you would do. You would just say everything. Just like with MIA, I would have been like, hey, so Al's alive. Just want to put that out there. You don't have to do anything with it. I just want to let you know Al's alive. If you still want to go with the other guy, sucks for Al. But I had to at least give it a shot. Like, I feel like I wouldn't ever, I know the consequences. I know. But I've one sentence and it could have changed Al's life. It brings to my mind the topic of predestination. Sam is telling everybody all these things. What's going to happen? What they need to fix? What they need to change? And none of it does. It's almost like he's traveled back in time to a replay of what happened and but he changes things. He does. But certain things are not changeable, maybe. I'm thinking that might be like on Doctor Who. You can change some things, but not others. I don't like time travel because that's not fair. I love time travel. I just mean like there shouldn't be. I mean, there has to be rules. Time but... travel's never fair. Have you ever seen the new version of The Time Machine? The beginning of that movie. Oh, my goodness. But that explains so. predestination a little bit, I think. And hey, the movie Predestination explains predestination. <laughs> I felt like that was a movie with you saying it. When I went to see it, I thought it was prestidigitation. Totally different. So like definitely and defiantly. I will defiantly wear that shirt. Yes, same thing. <laughs> I look at the beginning and endings of words and I guess about the middle. I will defiantly wear that shirt. Defiantly. I'm going to blame Spellcheck. But um, <laughs> my whole thought about that scene in the cornfield is he's telling Tom that he's going to get the first pheasant and miss the second one. By telling him that, wouldn't that affect what he actually does? It doesn't, obviously, but... Well, it's not like saying you're going to trip in that puddle so he avoids the puddle. If he's shooting and trying to aim for it, he was all along trying not to miss. So it's not like the first timeline he was trying to miss. And because Sam said, you're going to miss it, he was all of a sudden going, well, I'm not going to miss this. That's too much up to chance. Whereas like if he said, you're going to step on the red square and he steps on the blue square, that's more specific. I see what you mean. So he's trying his best both times and that's what happened both times. Right. He wasn't not trying the first time. So it doesn't really change because he can't control his aim apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I like that Sam proposes the revenge deal. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the revenge deal was at the basketball practice that him and his brother were having at the end. And he's like, how bad do you want this revenge? 
Do you want it enough that if I win the game, you stay in a hole for 24 hours? Now, I haven't seen the next episode, so I'm assuming, considering he has two chances to save his brother and is not successful, I'm assuming he's not in the next episode either, especially by the look on your face. Um, (laughs) I'm assuming it's not something that he's able to fix. So it's got to be a big deal that he doesn't stay in the hole. Like it's probably to save someone else or because he cannot. But it sucks because Sam saying that now means that when Tom is on that day and dying, that he knows that he let his brother down. I never thought of that. So now in the new timeline, not only does he die, he dies knowing that like his brother, he failed his brother. And he knows his brother was a time traveler. And was like, this is one of those times I should have listened to my little brother. I was thinking about that this last time that I was watching it. And I was like, wow, that's like a really good deal that he was like, you know what? Just stay safe for 24 hours like this day. Because if someone came up to me and said, like, don't drive your car on April 27th, 2018, I would be like, okay, all right, I'll mark it on my calendar, set an alarm, put it on my fridge. So like, I don't forget, like, what is one day? If that's my one day that I have to avoid, I'm all over that. I don't even care if you're crazy and I don't know anything about you. If you tell me a specific date to not die, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to not die. That just came up in Outlander. If somebody walked up to me, even a homeless person with like a yellow card in his hand and said not to do something on a certain date, I wouldn't. With a yellow card? Weird. <laughs> it's weird how everybody was just going, and eh, ignoring him. I don't know if it's because I've watched time travel and or because it's easier for me to say because I'm not in a situation like this. But I feel like if someone ran up to me on the side of the road, if someone at my dinner table, if somebody in my life all of a sudden said to me, if you do X, Y, Z, you're going to die. I would be like, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z. Though I don't really know how Tom could have gotten out of going to Vietnam. Right. Like in the time that they were in. It's not like he could be like, you know what? I'm going to sit this one out. And he just wanted one day. (sighs) Which makes me not want to watch the next episode. (laughs) Because I feel like it just means that Tom is going to die in the next episode. And that just, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. It's emotional. Are we going to somehow, is season three going to be like this? Is this the start of crying the entire season? Because I really hope not. There are some lighthearted episodes. He's a magician. Oh, that was the new image in the saga cell. Mm -hmm. Because... I realized there was a new clip. That you had no idea what it was. And I was like, hey, I've never seen that guy before. And you're like, it's not that new. And I was like, there was a guy. (laughs) And you were like, oh, yes. So at least I pay attention enough that I have memorized the saga cell to know where one thing has changed. So, But that's not a spoiler because people watching live back then got that new opening too. Just seeing an image is not a spoiler. The first season opening was like that too. They were showing all kinds of stuff and nothing had happened yet. Well, I guess they have to have, um, yeah. And it's crazy because we're re-watching Friends on our downtime. We usually marathon. They're 20 minutes, so they go so fast. Just one more. Yeah, <laughs> just, just like one more we episode. have 20 more minutes. That's fine. And then you've watched 19 and you're like, The sun's coming how. up. Just one more episode. Yeah, like where did, I was supposed to be working right now. I don't know. It, the same thing happens with that show too, though. Each season, it like foreshadows the whole season in the beginning. And you don't really realize it. Except when you just watched the previous season and you're like, these are all new images. I've never seen these before. The saga cell is a little bit different. 
Um, it has a lot of the same old shots in it. Did they get rid of the baseball shot this time? I remember him looking in the mirror. Again. Oh, wonder why. Speaking of baseball and the baseball episode, we know now why Sam was so good at baseball. He has an actual full-size Major League Baseball diamond in his backyard at his farm. Why? Why is that a thing? Like, who was like, let's just put a baseball field right here? It's very odd, right? Yeah. That's like, hey, I have a strip mall in my backyard because, you know, we didn't know what else to put there. I think we might find out more about that in the trivia. Oh, boy. I loved Scott Bakula's double in this episode. It looked a lot like Scott Bakula. There's some scenes where you see over the shoulder of the double for Scott Bakula. When you say double, do you mean, like, is it Diamond Farmsworth or is it? No. Well, it could be because it looks so much like him. You never know. Yeah. I have no idea who doubled Scott for that episode. But when you see the side of his face, when he's looking at his father, it looks like Scott Bakula. And the double for Scott runs like Scott Bakula. Scott Bakula has a very unique run. If you watch him run, no one runs like him. And it's pretty cool the way he does it, but no one runs like Scott Bakula. But this double took the time to mimic his run because we see the back of the double running past on the porch when he finally tells his family that he's making it all up and he didn't time travel. He runs past Scott Bakula as his dad. But he runs like Scott Bakula. So for the first time or two I watched that, I'm like, that's pretty crazy. Because you can always tell Scott Bakula by his run. I'm going to ask you this because I'm so confused at why you're so confident in how Scott Bakula runs. But how do you know how Scott Bakula runs? Whenever he's running on Quantum Leap, it's like, yep, that's Scott Bakula's run. And it's just... Does he run often? Yes, he runs a lot. And it's a unique run. It really is. I don't know what he does that's different, but people that have seen it know exactly what I'm talking about right now. And that's one of the things when I was watching Enterprise and he would run, I would be like, oh, that's a Scott Bakula run. I don't know if that's just all made up in my head, but the double ran like Scott Bakula. I have no knowledge of the Scott Bakula run, but I totally believe you. I'm on board with what you're saying. I just don't know. From now on, you'll see it. The next episode, I'm going to be like, oh, did you see that Scott Bakula run? That's now a thing. I like the line where he says, I always do the right thing. And where does it get me? And he also says God, time, fate, or whoever in this episode. Not whatever. He says whoever. I like that they're a little ambiguous about that because they've been very specific in recent episodes. Well, I guess he didn't want to like put his anger at God if it really wasn't God. (laughs) God's like, I didn't do it. (laughs) He was hedging his bets, I guess. (laughs) Whoever is up there messing with me, cut it out. I had mentioned before that I, I liked that he had a breakdown, but I love the line. I always do the right thing. Speaking of lines we liked, I liked two of Al's lines in this episode. Is one of them Yamola? Oh my goodness, yes. Because <laughs> I have that written down too, but I couldn't work it into this episode somehow. <laughs> he says Yamola, and I used to say Yamo because of Rachel Ray, but now I think I will say Yamola. That's another thing I picked up from him, and like I picked up Nozzle. Nozzle, you're a Nozzle. <laughs> I try not to be. He also said something about the cheerleaders' cute pom-poms. And <laughs> Sam was like, they don't have any O. And he looks at him like like he's shocked, like he's surprised that Al said that. Actually, I think he looks at him like, you got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> Weren't you just depressed in the last episode? It's the way he deals with it. The yeah. other line that Al said that I liked was talking about no-nos. He called him Sanzabeek. Yeah. That was funny. Because I had never caught that before. And then this past time, I caught it without a nose, I guess. Yeah. Sanzabeek. Sanzabeek. Is that like a character or something? or it's The like, character he, was no nose. I didn't know if he was referring to someone called that, but I knew what the translation, like sans, 
means no and mm-hmm. or without. But I just I didn't know if it was referring to something that also didn't have a nose. Not that I know of, but I just thought that was funny. I feel like no nose was a little confident for the fact that half of his nose was missing. It looked like something was just put on the end of his nose, like a little like appliance. Yeah. Well, duh. <laughs> so he had like a scar in his nose, but they kept him moving in the shot so you could never really look at his nose. Like he had like a Pinocchio nose, something but weird. something was missing. How do you do an appliance for a nose missing? Back I don't know. then they couldn't do it. Now, like with computer technology, they would have took his nose off like they did in that guy, like in Harry Potter. Voldemort has no nose. So I also like, we're going to go back to Katie for a second. But she says, Chuck. I love her. Oh, yeah, I I do too. But I like that she says, Chuck, yuck. And I'm like, you should remember that. Like, I feel like that's enough for you to be like, some guy named Charles comes up to you. And you're like, you don't go by Chuck, right? Like, I feel like that's enough of a rhyme for you to be like, Chuck is yuck. I shouldn't date Chuck because Chuck is yuck. And he convinces her to move to Hawaii and be abused. Very sad. I think the most powerful thing in this episode, besides Sam singing to Katie, is the last few seconds before he makes the basket because he's just standing there and everyone's like telling him to shoot and he's just looking at his family like, as soon as I shoot this ball, I know, I know I'm leaping because he knows, like he knows he's going to win and he knows this is it. So he's like, if I mess up on purpose, I can stay here. But he's never failed before. He might not. He might just keep leaping. But the assumption is. Yeah. Or he's just looking at them going like, these are the last few seconds I'm going to see you. His face says it all. Like, there's no explanation of the scene. There's nothing. It just says it. It says it all. That's what I felt. He was trying to stretch out the time as long as he could because he knew he would never see his father again. And he was hoping he would see his brother again. But, oh, can we talk about Al's face when he finds out on the hand link that his brother didn't make it? And he still gets killed. I thought that Al was just going to lie to him when he was like, it's still coming up, loading. I think that was a little bit of a lie. Well, but then he a just mistruth. says, well, but then he says, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't think he was going to tell him. I thought it was just going to be like, Wi-Fi's down. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's not really coming in. I know everything else but that, Sam. How do you tell someone that their brother's going to die? I don't know. <laughs> With that look on your face. Yeah, that was a look. What an actor. <sighs> Oh, yeah. He's never lacking in any of his acting skills. I will never stop singing the praises of Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell. Yeah, me neither. And when Sam says, bye, Dad. Yeah. Very sad. I don't know what's sadder, goodbye, Dad, or the look that Al gives him when he asks about Tom. They're both equally sad. It's two people that he loved and lost. I think they're both equally sad because I'm sure he loved his dad and his brother completely different, but it's both a tragic loss. Overall, The Leap Home. Good episode. I liked it. I think really good episode. Good writing. Good everything. I understand why it's Scott Bakula's favorite episode. Speaking of, as we promised earlier... Is it that time? Our guest on the show today is Scott Bakula. Woohoo! Today on our show, the man that needs no introduction, Scott Bakula. How are you doing today, sir? Uh, <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. All is good. Can you tell me how you got involved in Quantum Leap? You know, it was uh, it was a weird time. I, it was a, kind of an odd circumstance. I I was in uh, New York doing a show on Broadway, and 
I decided it was time to leave the show, and uh, everybody was saying, "What are you nuts to hit show? You da 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 da. You why would you leave it?" And I said, "No, I just it's time to go back to L.A." And um, and so I left the show, and four weeks later, I got this audition to uh, go in and meet Don Belisario and and read this thing. And they just sent me a couple scenes from it. They were, they looked good, and, and um, that just led to one, you know, kind of one thing after another. And ironically, that's the last two people that I was up against. Uh, for the role, were from New York, so they flew them in from New York. So I guess maybe if I'd stayed in New York, I still would have <laughs> gotten the show. It's hard to hard to say, but uh, sometimes it's just better to be in the room, um, it, you know, wherever the producers are. So that was it. It was just a kind of a twist of fate. If I'd stayed in that show, I wouldn't have gotten it. So wow, um, just kind of fortune. When you got the role of Sam Beckett, did you think it would be as big of a part as it ended up being? No, I don't think I, 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 honestly, I don't think I had any kind of clarity about that at all. I was kind of overwhelmed by just being in the show and um, getting the pilot, the two-hour pilot, and being, you know, uh, being in it with Dean and, and uh, Don Belisario and NBC, and it, I mean, it, was a, it was a huge deal at the time, Brandon Tartikoff and at the network and, and Universal Studios, and I was just more focused on trying to see how I could deliver, you know, that's, I, I wasn't, you know, you don't tend to think about the future very often. You just kind of try to do the best you can while you've got something. And so I was just, you know, completely focused on that. I had no idea about the parameters, the possibilities that the show could, could be, because I don't think anybody really did at that point. They were just kind of, Don had sold this idea and, you know, the legend, the story is always that uh, he was in the, in the room with, Brandon Tartikoff and Brandon said, I want to, I want you to do a series about the silver surfer. <laughs> and, uh, and Don said, uh, yeah, okay, that's interesting. But how about, what if, how about this idea instead? And he pitched him quantum leap and, and, uh, Brandon said, yeah, go, all right, go make, go make that. So that was a lot of support from Terry McCluggage and Gary Hart at Universal. They were real champions of the show and, and, uh, you know, we were kind of off, but, the idea, the parameters of it, that we, and it could have the longevity and the and the kind of worldwide uh, effect that's been associated with the show, and and how it's just been received everywhere, and how it's how it still plays so well, and people still respond to it. Is that's something that's just really been kind of. I don't think there's any way to you know predict those kind of things, but it's it's a what are we coming up on twenty twenty six? Yeah, yeah. Since we hit the air, and it's uh, it's you know it's something I'm just so proud to have been a part of and it always whenever I'm reminded of it or people talk about it it's always with such good good feeling that I feel and they you know associated with shows it's been a great wonderful you know part of my career anyway and and so many other people that worked on the show the actors the creative people the designers the writers everybody's just really had a great it was a great association all all things around you know CCH boundaries on NCIS with me, she did an episode, and and uh, a couple of years ago, I did the last five designing women, and and Terry Hatcher and Marcia Cross had both done episodes, you know, a long time ago, and just a lot of those kind of stories and great crew people that we worked with and still bump into. It's, it was a good, really good, talented group. Do you think you're going to have uh, more people that you worked with on Quantum Leap on NCIS New Orleans? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> it was. It was a kind of a fluke that it worked out that Dean could come on it, which was it's always so great to see him and be around him. And, um, and you know, as I worked with a lot of actors on that show, you yeah. know, I, I can't even count up how many actors. But I was talking to CCH about it the other day, and you know, just we we figure, you know, you start doing series television, you end up 
working with thousands of actors over the course of your career, if you're lucky. And I, there were lots of great ones on that show and a lot of great actors that went on to, you know, be continue to be great actors and, and work in the business. So um, hopefully, uh, you listen, we've been extremely lucky to have a wonderful group of uh, guest actors come down this year to New Orleans to work. So I hope that, you know, we can get more and more to come down. When Dean was on the show, was it like old times? Yeah, you know, it was. It was. He was just there for a day, really. So he, he, I think he was there the day before, and we shot us all morning. And then he got. I think he got on a plane and left later that night. I can't. I can't remember what how if he was there that night or not. I was still working. He left. And we had a whole another day of shooting to do, and then uh, he was gone. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're uh, we're kind of shorthand. You know, we know each other so well, and and we have such fond, strong memories and history together. And Jenny Whitmore directed that episode. So that kind of compounded the, the, the emotional aspect of the day for all three of us. And um, it was pretty remarkable. It just it was great. Great scene. A lot of people in the fan community were very excited about that episode. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty, uh, you know, just another, all, all the days with Dean are pretty remarkable, but that's one I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that one for sure. Do you remember like a specific point while you were filming Quantum Leap when you realized you had a hit on your hands and you were going to be there for a while? Um, never. Um, we never. We never had that kind of security. It, it, in retrospect, everybody looks back and says, well, you guys were, you were such a big hit. And we really weren't a big hit. We were marginal. I think we had six time slots in the course of the four and a half seasons. We barely got out of the first nine episodes in the first our first half order. We were on the chopping block really at episode six. And and that's uh, the Driving Miss Daisy episode really kind of saved the show and put the show on the map and kept us around for season, you know, for a full season. And that's really where we got going. And But, you know, we, we gosh, we had, we were in a really tough time slot. I think it was China Beach and uh, Wise Guy was at Ken's show, I think. Too. That's where we started on Wednesday nights, although I think we might have started on another night. We premiered against Moses, you know, I mean, it was just... <laughs> It was just, uh, you know, we were, it was definitely stacked against us for a while. And we slowly kind of just, our fan base just kind of grew and supported and, and really forced the issue with the network. I, there was a time, I forget which season it was. I think it was after Brandon had left uh, NBC and Warren Littlefield was there and they did a whole commercial where he was sitting at his desk and they poured thousands of letters on top <laughs> of it back when people wrote letters, you know, and that was a promo for our show, you know. Viewers for quality television were, were, you know, were crazy about us and promoted us all the time. We were, we were always, you know, we we never, I never felt comfortable. Maybe, maybe between the season two and three, maybe we felt like we were gonna, you know, come back. I think when we kind of started winning our time slot, then we felt we started to feel pretty good. But it was just, it was always touch and go. Was it rough on you having to be in every scene pretty much for the whole series? It was. You know, I can't deny that. It was very physically demanding. Um, it was emotionally demanding. It was certainly time demanding. It was crazy how much time we spent. Back then, there, there were less. There was less care for the crews, and and less. I certainly had less um, protection in terms of my contract than I would. I, I just didn't. I was young. I didn't really take care of myself that much in terms of the workload and things. So. I was, uh, you know, I was, you know, you just kind of sink your teeth and you say, well, you know, you you look at it. I always looked at it as a marathon and, you know, you, was, you just had to pick up and move from episode to episode and, and 
I always had a different new cast I had to learn every week, you know, and every seven or eight days or nine or ten went back then. And, and that was, that was, you know, wonderful, but it was also, you know, it added extra stress and challenges and, you know, every, every group was different and, um, you had, you know, weeks that were per- lovely, workable, fantastic. And then you had weeks where, you know, it was like, you know, it was a struggle. And, um, so, you know, I got through it. I got through it in one piece. I had great help from Diamond Farnsworth and the Stunt community kept me alive and uh, set up stuff so that I could do a lot and, and, but also be safe. And, you know, I had a few minor things go wrong, but, you know, it was a lot of uh, physical stuff and along with the long hours. So I, uh, I certainly couldn't do that now, but, um, it was, it was a challenge, but everybody kind of was in the same, every department was challenged. Everybody was challenged creatively and it just made for a really energetic kind of environment where we kind of picked each other up and, and just kept, kept on going on and everybody believed in the show and it was never boring because we were making these little mini period movies really every eight to 10 days. And, and that was always exciting. And, um, we never knew what was going to happen to me, what my challenges were going to be in terms of skills I would have to learn or pretend to know. And so that certainly kept me on my toes. So it flew by. I have to say it was never, you were never, you were never sitting there saying, Oh my gosh, not another courtroom scene or something. We were, we never had anything, nothing ever repeated except a couple of sets. So, so it was uh unique in that sense. And, uh, happily, you know, uh, I survived. I only worked with, you know, one actor repeatedly. Dean only had to work with me. Everybody else was a new actor all the time. I have the great opportunity of interviewing your co-stars every time we do a new episode. Yeah. Without fail, they always make it clear that you are one of the nicest, most generous, giving people they've ever worked with. Is that a conscious thing that you do, or is it just you're just a great guy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, again, um, I'm in the business this business because I like actors. I like I like being around actors. I like working. I like being an actor and working on scenes and creating emotional moments and, and creating uh, scenes and, and uh, episodes that, that work, that are moving, that are thought provoking, that are exciting, that are funny, all of those things. I, I, I love that aspect of it. So I, you know, I'm a fan of actors, so it starts there. And I also realized early on, I didn't do a lot of guesting in the beginning of my career, but I did enough of it to, know what it's like to be a guest and I also because of the nature of quantum being that it was just Dean and myself and he never had to work with anybody else except me um, that the episodes were really and I feel this way you know what I'm doing right now too on NCIS is that the episodes are only ultimately as good as um, your guests that come on and the best way to be to have success for your guests is for them to feel comfortable, for them to feel important, for them to feel like they have a voice, that they that they have an opinion, that we can work together and create something together. And so, that's just always been my feeling. It's just a, it's it's uh, you could say uh, uh, that it's selfish that I, you know, the the better the guests are, the more the happier they are, um, the better our work's going to be because you know it's hard to come in and say hi, hello, and you know you've got a, a romantic scene with the with somebody and you have to climb into bed with them and, and, and you've met them five minutes earlier. It's just, it's, it's, it's goofy what we do sometimes. So, and there's no planning. It's not like, Oh, every time you can always meet somebody and work with them for five days before you have to do any intense kind of emotional thing. It's, 
sometimes it's the first, the hardest scene in the episode is the first one you shoot. So it was just, it's always been, I want, I, I like what we do. I like working on a set. I like the teamwork. I like it to be loose and people to have a good time because I don't understand why you wouldn't have a good time in, in our business. There's no, you can, you know, I, I, I always hear the stories about directors or people that like to have tension and upset and people intrigued. And I just think that that's, that's, you know, everybody can do whatever they want to do and create all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're making, we're creating roles, we're creating fiction, we're, and yes, we want to be believable and real and everything, but that's our job is to do that. And and while we're here working for all these hours, they might as well be pleasant. So that's just kind of my overall philosophy. And there's so many great actors that I've worked with and that are wonderful, lovely, engaging, interesting people, and they're actors, and I'm a, I'm one too. So it's um, it's it's never been you know it's never been a, a challenge or like a like a goal of mine. It's just how I feel like we can all get the best out of, make the most of our days, get the work done quickly and and beautifully and go home. You mentioned that it could be emotionally difficult, and I think that's probably some of the best parts of Quantum Leap is when the emotion was there in those moments like in MIA and the Leap Home. And how much of yourself do you have to put into the character of Sam Beckett when you were doing it? Well, you know, it's always you always pull from your life and your experiences, and certainly I, I wasn't able to pull from being a child genius and going to MIT and having all of that stuff. But I'm, also, I'm from the Midwest. I understand farmers. I understand um, the Midwest kind of mentality about treating people and how they feel about their neighbors, and and so I used a lot of that. There's a certain naivete that I that Sam Beckett had that I could relate to, and I and I brought in brought in that also, but. You know, the emotion really, you know, in my opinion, comes from what's in a script. And we had the great good fortune of having a lot of wonderful scripts that had great emotional moments in them. And I can say without, you know, there are very few scripts. There were many times when I'd read a script that would show up and I, it would, I'd be moved to tears. And not just in year one, but in year five. And, and, and that's just you know, good writing. And then, and then, you know, Dean was always so great with his, with stuff and surprising and you never really quite knew where he was going to come from. The Jimmy episode, the first Jimmy episode, when he was talking about his sister and the scene and he just, you know, they were, those moments were on the page and, um, and they were successful on the page and we, our job was to just, you know, let them, let them happen. And, and, uh, we were, you know, so lucky to have, uh, Don and you know we had a ton of great writers on the show, but he, he, Don Belisario has a he's a big, big-hearted, um, rough and tumble Italian guy um, that wants everybody to think that he's you know tough and uh, you know he he can be. Let's just put it that way. But uh, at the core of it, all those all the relationship stuff between Sam and Al that's that's Don. That's a part of him that really comes through. It's not in just in our series. It's in Magnum and all, you know, a lot of his great stuff that he really explored those relationships and they worked. What are some of the um, big moments that stick out in your memory for Sam Beckett? Well, certainly, gosh, there's so many, I can't even, I couldn't even begin. But so, you know, the Leap Home is always, you know, one of my favorites because that was just, and I got to play 
my father in it and, and the, the kind of sing imagine in it and then the whole relationship with my brother that carried over to MIA. Those were two just remarkable back-to-back episodes. Um, you know, the, uh, the whole Oswald, that two-hour piece was, was fantastic and um, La Mancha was wonderful and uh, the last episode was great, the Jimmy episode. You know, again, we just... we. We kept finding, meeting these, creating these interesting situations that Sam would get into, and they just, you know, really, it really was kind of a, the perfect scenario, and it could, have, it just could have, it could have gone on and on, you know, for there was no, it could, it could, Quantum Leap could have been like, it could have easily been Doctor Who, it could have been Doctor Beckett, you know, and you just, it could have been, you know, I could have gotten tired after a certain amount, I could have put a new guy in there and a new a new Al in there, and it could have just gone on and on because because the, the the premise of the show was is is perfect in that you know you, what's it like to be walking somebody else's shoes and it's as simple as that and what would you do if you could do something over again? So many people when they talk about Quantum Leap today, they always are hoping for more Quantum Leap. Do you think there will be eventually a reboot or a reimagining of Quantum Leap? Oh, somebody will do it. Yeah, they'll figure it out. It's just you know whether it's Don that does it or. Or, or somebody, I, I'm sure they will, because our, our, our town of Hollywood is famous for um, reimagining, you know, old ideas. There are only so many new ideas anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm, I, it'll happen. It'll happen at some point. You know, it's just been it's been a troubled road uh, so far with that, but somebody will figure it out. Yeah, it's almost surprising that it hasn't happened yet. Oh, it's very surprising. But, but you know. Um, you know, I, the last time I talked to Don, he said, "Yeah, they're always. They, everybody wants me to write Magnum. They want to write in the Magnum movie. They want me to write the Quantum Leap movie." And you know, and you know, he's not a. He's got a lot going on in his life, and yeah. uh, that's not necessarily a priority for him. So, mm-hmm. we're just grateful for what we had five seasons. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> Talking about uh, the Leap Home and uh, playing your dad, could you tell me what that was like playing opposite yourself and having to do all the makeup and the technical part of it? Well, it was grueling. It was a grueling experience mainly because just back then the the prosthetics and the and the the system that existed to do age and makeup and everything just took a really long time. So um, I started the first time we did it. I was I went into makeup at eleven o'clock. I think I went to Jerry's house at eleven o'clock at night. Jerry Quist and he put it on from eleven till you know I went into work at seven thirty and um, in the morning and. Worked until lunch, then we took it off, and then I shot the rest of the day. I, I shot my side of the scenes, so it was complicated. And then Mike Mills came in, and then he was doing it. But he would, we'd go to the trailer at whatever time in the middle of the night. I think we think the last couple. It almost always took though about eight hours. So it was it was arduous. And uh, the last time I did it, I was actually directing the episode also, and it was uh, it was uh, it was insane. Were they able to use the same makeup again when you reprise the role of your dad in that episode, Promised Land? Uh, no. Well, it was the same mold, but no. Every time you take that, once it's a one-time makeup. So I think I had seven different appliance pieces on my face and a wig and and so, you know, a bald cap and a hair piece after that. And so those all, once you're done with that, you throw those away. We kept the hair piece, I think. But At least they kept the mold. Start over again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Was that your decision to bring back your dad in that episode, or did they write that? No, that was in the script. Okay. That was the script that they wrote. How did you feel about directing those three episodes of Quantum Leap? Oh, I had a ball. Yeah, I had a ball. 
loved it. Had a great time. Um, I loved uh, just working with the actors and being able to talk to the actors and, um, in a different way than uh, you you're able to when you're acting with a with a director with a director. So it's uh, it's really you know it was it was very enjoyable. It was a protected kind of environment because I knew everybody and everybody's strengths and everybody's weaknesses, and I knew what you know. I just tell people to go do their thing, and it worked out great. You know, the world again back then there was no video playback. You just uh, watched it on a monitor. And so they had to rig up a, an old VHS deck and attach that somehow to the top of the, the monitor and then record that and then put it on a tape and I could watch it back if I wanted to and take it home. It was, you know, it was a big McGilly back then. So it's, it's way different now, certainly. But um, back then it was, uh, it was a little bit of a challenge, but it worked, it worked out. I was, I'm, I haven't looked at any of those in a while, but I, I'm pretty proud of what I did with them. And we had some really, really tough days, and we made them, so it was good. Did you ever get the urge to direct on Enterprise? Um, not really. I mean, I probably would have eventually, but um, that was a that was an interesting time, and and there was so much technical stuff, and I was just kind of getting familiar with you know all of the technology that was already in place because. That was a well-oiled machine uh, already just coming off of Voyager, and they've had the movies going, and it was just... So we were I was kind of behind in terms of... I wasn't with... The, you know, they had their effects people and everything that, that had been doing it for 15 years. So there was a lot of educating that needed to be to be done, and, and we had a bunch of good directors. And um, I didn't... I didn't actually... I didn't actually pursue it in, in, that, in that show at all, and Although I probably would have down the line. Oh, cool. For Quantum Leap, did most of the directors, did you enjoy working with them? Were there any that just didn't get the character or the show while you were working on them? No, we really, you know, I, I finally, you know, after the first couple of years, I said to Don, I said, you know, I, it's really hard for me to get through the year. And if you could just, if you wouldn't mind and the network would be okay, I would just, I'd like to just limit the number of directors we have. So that I, the people that came would know the show. That was the hardest part. Was when a new director came in and he didn't know how we did the mirror shots. He didn't know how we did the leaps in and out and the the bringing Dean in and out because it was again way before any of the technology from today. So um, it was all little kind of tricks, but they took time. And and I just said, you know, it's I'm because I'm there every second of it, and I, you know. It, the people, once they know how to do it, then they get in and they do it right. You know, it's quick and it's, they know how to do it and we're moving along as opposed to, you know, kind of re relearning it for new directors. And not to say that we didn't have some new directors that came along, but for the most part, I said pretty much after season two, I just said, you gotta, you gotta help me out here. Cause it's just, it, it's, it's exhausting to help directors and new people that hadn't directed before but I said oh my gosh they haven't directed before and they're directing our show and I, and I end up I ended up having to do a lot and and met, and it was fine and it was I don't mind working that way sometimes but uh, over the course of a year it would just took a huge extra toll on me energy wise and I just you know so we we kind of got a stable of directors that were pretty you know consistent and they liked doing the show and we could kind of rotate them and it was like okay here comes Whitmore here comes Zinberg here comes you know different people Joe and all so we would just have right kind of a bunch of regulars and then we everybody was something 
That's good. So towards the end of the series, it was probably getting uh, almost like clockwork and better for you. Well, no, see, the problem was we never had, because every episode, we didn't have any repeating anything. Uh. So every episode started from scratch. It was a new new year, a new look, a new, all different cars. Uh, every department had to figure out what's the right wardrobe, what's the right signage, what's the right and the script was brand new. There was no carryover. There wasn't anybody else except Dean and myself. You know, you had to you had to recast and get new people and come. You know, so it was never it was never clock it was never clockwork. It was always always a challenge because there was just nothing nothing repeated. We had the we had the sets where um, back home, uh, if you will, in the in the in our workspace where we had some leftover. You know, we had the all of our scientific stuff, our the, you know the chamber and all those kinds of things, but we only went there I think maybe twice, maybe three times, and that was it. So those were that's those were our standing sets. We didn't have anything else. So everything was everything was new. You couldn't go in and flip on the switches and say here we are back in the courtroom, um, and we're lit. You know it's just like no everyone we had to kind of re reimagine, redo, re you know just create from scratch. I wanted to ask you about when you were playing Sam Beckett and when you would leap into a new leapy every episode. It seemed to us while we're watching it that you take on certain personality traits of the leap E. In your mind, when you were doing that, if you were doing that, how much of the leap E were you adding to the character of Sam Beckett? And did that make for almost a different character every episode for you? Um, I think that most of that was in the imagination of the audience, which which is just fine. I I started making conscious choices in about year three that I would start letting the journey affect Sam Beckett on more of a cellular level than just an external level, and um, because it was just something that I thought was interesting, and Don didn't object to it, and I didn't really we didn't even really talk about it. I just started doing it. Certainly, and I forget what season Oswald was. If that was the beginning of three or four, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, those kind of episodes just were kind of so deeply troubling and emotional. And when we did the episode in the shot theater, I think, and stuff, I just felt like we could take the license, certainly in the sci-fi genre, to start letting some of these experiences start to kind of, and and the time travel and the, you know, the molecular rearranging and everything. I just thought it'd be interesting if we touched on that a little bit. So I started laying stuff in. Um, it was fun to do. It was different things, the pregnancy episode, things like that, where I just took it a little bit further than, say, what I, what I would have done in the first, you know, 15 episodes. And, and, um, and it was, I do, I like to do things like that. If, if it's correct, for, when it feels right to me, then I think it's fun for the, you know, for people who are watching the show. It may not be, and I don't talk about it when I'm doing it. It's not like, here's what I'm going to do this year on the show. I just, you let stuff sink in and you let people because now that everything, everything can be watched over and over and over again, and uh, I felt the same way about Enterprise and um, you know things that I've done that have been around for a while, even men of a certain age, you just you start laying layering your part. That's what we do as actors. You start building and and trying to generate something that's that's alive and breathing as a character. And, and uh, so I just started pushing those things in there, and it, it's you know it was. I did it for me, for the, you know, it's little, little, um, cherries for the fans, you know, and, uh, people that get it, people that don't, it's, it's okay. Do you think the writers pick up on what you're doing and write towards that more? 
I don't know. I never talked to any of them about it. I just took what they gave me, and then I just, if there was something that felt right to do, then I, I went and did it. And I, you know, I'd find that quite often. I'd just find it on the, uh, you know, while we were shooting it, um, just as I do, you know, on, on NCIS here or whatever. You'll be in a scene and say, well, I wonder, well, wonder what would happen if I, you know, grab that guy's arm here or whatever it is and it changed the whole scene so i mean the whole um the whole scene and so um i don't i don't think they, they never wrote anything in a script that said anything to that nature okay um but there was definitely an energy and a vibe about what we were doing and and i i just took what they wrote and and went pushed a little bit further i have a little bit of a technical question i, I spoke with tommy thompson and i spoke with mr belisario yeah about like uh-huh. the science of quantum leap and uh-huh. there, from what I understand, there was no hard rules, but what is your take on like if your body was actually there or if it was your, just your personality and different things like that? Well, uh, <laughs> that, that's like impossible. I, my, my best memories of all of this were people writing us letters and saying, you've broken the rules of time travel. That was my <laughs> favorite part of the whole thing, you know? Steven Spielberg established these rules, and you can't you guys can change them. <laughs> and uh, and that that always that's always made me laugh. But I like Don's idea about about your life is a you know is a, is a circle a string, and if you ball it up and different parts of the string touch each other, you can move from one to the other. Um, I I believe that we're energy, so energy can be moved and shaped and twisted around. So and and what we perceive of our realities around us is certainly uh, something that is our, uh, we can imagine any way we want to, and um, we're, we look at things that we think are something that's a table, but we all, we know that it's made up of cells and energy, and so um, I like to feel that as, you know, that that was also an evolving thing, that, that we took a convention that the character's appearance didn't shift, but you know, the the person inside, the essence of the person was not there anymore, that my, the essence of Sam Beckett was in that person for that amount of time. The energy, my spirit was in that person and their spirit was back in my body. So that's how I always looked at it. Very cool. Very cool. Mirror Image, what did you think of it and how was it different when it aired from when you read the script and filmed it? Because I understand there was alternate endings and they didn't come up with the final title card until a couple days before it aired. Well, uh, you know, I've said this many times, but it was the greatest piece of writing that that we did on the whole show, short of the creating the creating the show, because it had a, it served five different purposes. It was, you know, if we got renewed, if we got canceled forever, if we were going to make a movie of the week, if there was going to be a feature film. Um, so Don had to fulfill all of these. Uh, ideally, he was trying to, you know, serve a bunch of different masters and give the show po- all these possibilities set up it's the last show so because we didn't know when we when we shot it and um and i whenever i look at it or see it or some talk to somebody i think it's genius because it was such an uh, such a bizarre abstract kind of journey trip back memory whatever memory lane would be for sam um with all these different characters that we'd seen but in in a different situation it was pretty trippy and god and bruce mcgill you know just all kinds of stuff going on and uh i just thought it was you know it was so much fun to shoot uh jimmy whitmore shot that episode uh obviously you know it was don's family's bar recreated down you know within an inch of its life and for the pictures and the pig knuckles on the on the bar <laughs> and, um his family came in and were just you know 
moved to tears when they walked in to, to see it. And, and always, you know, we had a feeling it was going to be the last episode, so it was extremely emotional. And outside of shooting, it's always hard when you're, like, closing night on a Broadway show or something. You're just, it's very hard to get through the show because you've been through so much and you've had so many experiences. And it was weird. It was like the rap party that year was weird because we were like, is this really a rap party? Is it a rap rap party? Or uh, it was just, it was, uh, it, it was extremely difficult. And yet, I think the fact that people still talk about it, some people didn't like it, some people, hardly anybody, you can never find any show where everybody says, oh, that was the best last episode ever. Everybody's always unhappy in some some way, shape, or form. And, and you know, I, I still am intrigued and puzzled and delighted by the whole episode and and the fact that we're still talking about what did it mean and who was that and was that God and was that who was it, Bruce Wiggins, all of those things. It's like, great, that's good. Everybody's talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be all spelled out all the time. So I, 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 I loved it. Uh, great scenes in it. Great scenes with Dean at the end. It was just, you know, it was, it was, uh, and then you had the card at the end, you know, all of that stuff. And uh, so that's, that was the last episode. It's crazy. And finally, before we go, is there anything you'd like to say to all the leapers that are listening? Uh, no, just, you know, I, it's been, it's been a lot of great years and uh, sharing this, this journey with everybody. And I'm, I'm always delighted that new people find it. And, uh, Still, so many people talk about watching Quantum Leap with their family, and that's always, I think, a great. Um, it's a, it's you know a sign of the times back then, but certainly, it's it always makes me happy that people. Oh yeah, I just I watch this every Sunday with my dad, or you know this is, we all sat around the TV and watched it. No, because people don't do that anymore. So very seldom anyway. And so I'm you know it's 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 a miraculous journey that we're still around and all over the planet and and well received and. Um, something I'm proud of, and uh, it's the fans have been awesome for many, many years, and and we keep getting new ones. Thank you so much. You got it. I'm not the only one 
I hope someday you'll join us And the world really is one This is Elton Ray Bunch, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. And that was Scott Bakula. There's actually more to that interview that you can find at quantumleappodcast.com. A bunch of spoilery stuff about future episodes and the finale of Quantum Leap. So check that out, quantumleappodcast.com. That was an awesome interview. I love that his answers were so different than what we had envisioned. Like, I love that he explains his side of what he thought, how Sam was sleeping, and if it was an aura or whose body he was in or whatever. I think it was really cool how he explained that. And you can clearly hear his love for the show during it. And I know that it was just like another show that he has done. And I'm sure that he loves all the shows that he's on. But I love that he had explanations. That's what he believed it to be when he was recording. And that was just really cool to hear it from Scott Bakula himself. Such a nice guy. I love talking to him. I had a whole other page of questions all about Enterprise, but we just didn't get to it. Maybe one day in the future. I don't know. But we learned a lot about Quantum Leap, and I really enjoyed his take on everything. And it was just cool to talk to Scott Bakula. I answer the phone, and he says, hey, this is Scott Bakula. When does that happen ever, right? You're like, no, but really. (laughs) I kind of knew you were calling, but it's really cool that you said, hey, this is Scott Bakula. I don't know. I'm a little fanboy about it a little bit. Okay, a lot. (laughs) <laughs> when did he laugh at you calling him sir yeah I said, I said how you doing sir and he's like he laughed a little bit because i was calling him sir but you know i want to be respectful because he's scott bacula yeah man but he's he just seemed like a really cool dude i'm still shocked i i remember when you first thought of this whole project and getting scott bacula on the show and i was like yeah sure buddy <laughs> good luck with that <laughs> you didn't believe my crazy but it worked out <laughs> uh, thank you so much to Scott and thank you to JD Schwartz for helping us set that up. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And now I'd like to play a little clip from Hey, it's Tiffany S. Tiffany from Instagram. She is learning to play, I think, a violin. It could be a viola. I'm not sure. I can't tell them apart. But she's learning to play it and she figured she'd uh, play a little bit of the Quantum Leap theme song for us and tag us in it. And it was so cool and it was only 15 seconds. So I asked her to record a longer version for us, and she did, and here it is. awesome i think we listened to that over and over and over and over again (laughs) it's my new ringtone (laughs) thank you so much tiffany in our next episode we have two guests one david newsom who played tom sam's brother in the leap home part one and two 
And we also have Andrea Thompson. You might know her from Babylon 5, but she played the photojournalist in The Leap Home Part 2. I'm excited to have them on the show. It's very cool that we had Scott Bakula on this episode because it's being released on my birthday. You almost said the year. I almost did. <laughs> We're going to go with 36 again still. Uh-huh. No, it's Albie's big birthday, 4 <laughs> Wow. A third of the way there. Yes. Well, that's a milestone. What better way to celebrate than uh, having Scott Bakula on the show? That's pretty awesome. I don't think you can top that. What am I going to do next year? Hmm. And now we have a segment from the award-winning author, Christopher DeFilippis. Our own Chris DeFilippis won first place at the 2015 Media Awards for the Press Club of Long Island. And he won for social media, blog created and maintained by an individual. So DeFlipside is his blog and he won first place. So congratulations, Chris. Congratulations. That's awesome. He's a good writer. We're not biased at all. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. Early in the 20th century, author Thomas Wolfe wrote, You can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood. Back home to places in the country, back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time. Back home to the escapes of time and memory. Don Belisario apparently took these wistful words to heart, because they're practically the plot synopsis of Quantum Leap's third season opener, The Leap Home, one of the series' most affecting and heart-wrenching episodes. Because as Sam comes to discover, the escapes of time and memory are an illusion, even for a man with a time machine. It's not a coincidence that Sam's experience hews so closely to Wolf's words, because they distill an essential truth about the journey into manhood. And if Quantum Leap is about anything, it's about the journey of the white American man in the 20th century. Sure, the show's premise allowed it to explore multiple points of view across race and gender, but whenever it came to the characterizations of Sam and Al, it always focused on the quintessential ideals that traditionally define manhood. Honor. Duty. Accountability sacrifice. These notions underpin the rules that all men were expected to follow. Strike out into the unknown, work hard, achieve success, build a life, build a legacy, make a difference. And Sam and Al were the prisms through which Belisario explored these themes across episodes and across generations. Al's Horatio Alger-like life represents what you're supposed to get through an unquestioning devotion to these ideals. An orphan of the Depression, Al pulled himself up by his bootstraps, and turn childhood poverty and tragedy into a life of adventure and accomplishment. There's a reason Al is a Navy pilot and astronaut. He embodies the principles that became synonymous with the unparalleled achievements of the jet and space ages. But even as they reached the zenith with the moonshots of the 1960s, faith in these principles was eroding. The Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, women's lib, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, all of them called these ideals into question. And that's where Sam comes in. He's the 20th century man in transition, literally and figuratively, constantly forced to examine truths that had always been deemed self-evident. And Quantum Leap did so with sincerity. It never questioned the validity of 20th century ideals. Rather, it took a hard, honest look at how we were applying them and how we could and should make them more inclusive. And even though Sam was helping shift the cultural paradigm away from the all-white, all-male norm, it didn't let him off the hook he still had to follow the traditional male playbook, 
leap into the unknown, be successful or else, make a difference. And doing so meant following the rules, no matter the price. Your wife leaves you? Too bad. Your dad drops dead? Boo-hoo. Your brother gets killed in Vietnam? Walk it off. These are the sacrifices we make. Anything else is just gravy, which I'll pretty much tell Sam in The Leap Home. I always do the right thing now. And what does it get me? Why can I save strangers and not the people I love? It's not fair, Al. I mean, come on, it's not fair. Well, I think, uh... I think it's damn fair. What? I'd give anything to see my father and my sister for a few days, to be able to talk with them again, laugh with them, tell them how much I love them. I'd give anything to have what you have, Sam. Anything. Don't whine. Don't question. Just treasure it while it lasts. Al's old school thinking is very telling. In MIA, we learned that Al was so duty-bound that he volunteered for a second tour in Vietnam which ultimately cost him his marriage to his first wife, Beth. And when the rules of leaping prevent him from rewriting history to save the marriage, Al reluctantly does his duty, makes the sacrifice, and loses Beth again. But not Sam. After being told that he can't change his own family's lives for the better, Sam goes rogue and makes what is arguably his first conscious leap, to Vietnam to try to save his brother. It signifies the generational shift between Al and Sam. In effect, Sam is saying no. We do have the right to question these rules and how we're applying these ideals. What good are sacrifice and duty without reward? What good is changing the game if we don't teach ourselves to play it differently as well? Of course, all of this is subtext and these themes ebbed and flowed throughout the show, but they took center stage in the series finale, Mirror Image. In the episode, Sam is cut off from the project and must act purely on instinct. His ideals help keep him afloat, but he can't move forward if he maintains his blind adherence to his normal way of doing things. He needs to let go of Al, because the old rules he represents no longer apply. And once Sam realizes that, he not only forges ahead, but he's able to redeem Al's sacrifices as well, making sure they aren't in vain. He's not abandoning his ideals. His journey will still require honor and duty and accountability and sacrifice. But rather than clinging to what they once represented, he's looking forward to how he can apply them to the tougher leaps that lie ahead. It's a true evolution, because he uses the best of what has come before him as a springboard to the future. I don't know if the white male establishment in the 21st century is any closer to achieving this transformation, but I, for one, continue to try. One of the funny things about Quantum Leap was that it was always 1999 back at the project, no matter how long Sam had been leaping. It was probably a continuity glitch, but perhaps Belisario did it deliberately, perpetually keeping Quantum Leap on the cusp of a new era, one that Sam and all the rest of us, regardless of race and gender, would only be able to enter after foregoing the escapes of time and memory. Thank you so much, Chris. That was very good. I, I really like his take on that. Makes you think, you know? Yeah. Who says you can't go home? And now it's time for some feedback. Feedback. We have a voicemail. Finally. Yay. Woohoo. This one's from Ben. Hi, LV and Heather. It's Ben Mysek from Omaha, Nebraska. 
Okay, I love the show, really do. What if any thoughts? What if Sam tried to do his quantum leap experiment today? What sort of issues would he run into? Who would he leap into? Would he run into the evil leaper again? Thanks. Bye. I would say yes. In a modern incarnation of Quantum Leap, you would definitely have more bad guys instead of just bad situations, I think. Yeah, I think we've talked about in the past it being a darker version if they redid it now. But I would hope not. I I think the cool thing about Quantum Leap is he's fixing things and making things right. So I would hope that it would still be kind of homey. Some issues they'd cover now would probably be marriage equality, being able to order a pizza or a cake in certain places. Yeah, I definitely think they would have done an episode on that. I don't know. It'd be interesting. I'm thinking like Scott mentioned in his interview, it could still be going today and there's so many topics that they didn't cover. Yeah. So uh, it'd be great to see it back on the air. Yeah, it could be like Doctor Who with just different people, like with our audio drama. (laughs) Even with Scott Bakula in an alternate universe, because I mean, he's doing a TV show on the air right now. Yeah. So it could have been Quantum Leap again. Yeah, that'd be nice. Either way, I'll watch it. I'll watch it if he's a doctor or a lawyer. I don't care. <laughs> and it's Scott Bakula, right? Yeah. So thank you very much, Ben. And uh, keep those voicemails coming. I feel like we should call someone else out on this episode. I'm going to continue to call out the members of the Quantum Leap podcast universe to come leave voicemails on our show. So none of you are safe. Gerald Geraldo writes, what the f*** did you guys do to your website? Well, we... um. Hey, did you guys see the new update to the website? I like it. It's got cool video backgrounds and all kinds of stuff. And Yeah, I, I think it's really cool. Apparently, it doesn't really work well on um, some internet connections, but... He says, all the tedious loading from page to page, what were you thinking? So we made a little bit of tweaks after that, thinking for people that might not have the fat pipe like I have. <laughs> I don't even know what to respond to that sentence. So there's <laughs> less loading and more... Old-fashioned loading, where, like, you wait for pictures to pop up. We were just trying to take you back to 1995 dial-up speeds, you know. I no big deal. I sign. Gorak. <laughs> All right. So, uh, thanks for the feedback. This is from Tina Maria. This is on our Facebook page. Hi, Heather and Albie. I just started listening to your podcast not too long ago. I just finished listening to Jimmy. I grew up watching Quantum Leap and loved it. I loved when Al would get mad at Gushy. Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell had great chemistry. I love listening to your interviews. I think it's great that you two are married. Listening to your earlier podcasts, I had a feeling you two were a couple. You both have great chemistry. It's good to see that Scott Bakula is still going strong. Loved him as Sam. Thought it was great that he became a captain in Star Trek. I didn't see it, but I know there was an episode with Dean Stockwell. I wanted to comment on Jimmy. That was one of my favorites. I have been working with students of all abilities for about 20 years, and it's amazing how far we have come and how far we still need to go. I look forward to listening to more episodes as I catch up. Take care, Tyna. Oh, thank you so much. I love when we hear we have new listeners. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast universe. Yes, thank you. I love that episode. We have Facebook feedback from Christopher DeFilippis. Very cool. Not only a contributor, but also a feedbacker. Hello to all my QLP friends. I just finished listening to the MIA podcast and wanted to compliment everyone involved. A great job all around. It gave me the courage to finally delve into the Seabride podcast. Four hours, Albie? It's almost like you're daring us to listen. I feel like it took him that long. Like he started it when we first released it and he just finished it. And then Chris continues, 
I got through the four hours painlessly. It took a couple of days, but the content was so good that all of it was a pleasure. I especially enjoyed the interviews. When J.G. Hertzler admitted that he remembered very little about working on Seabride, Albie seamlessly moved on to his other work and got an interesting hour of stories about his amazing genre career. Albie then circled back to Quantum Leap briefly before wrapping up. A lesser and less prepared interviewer would have insisted on staying on topic, Quantum Leap, and gotten a lousy, awkward 20 minutes. Hertzler is also emblematic of the kind of people who worked on Quantum Leap, it seems. All the interviews I've heard reveal the cast and crew to be affable, dynamic, and interesting individuals. You're doing really good work, Albie. See, we think you're awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I just enjoyed talking to him, and I was a big fan of all of his work that when he didn't remember much, I was like, okay, cool, we get to talk about Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'd already talked to two people about Seabride, so I pretty much knew all that was going on. But I wanted to find out more, so I found out more about Deep Space Nine. Which I'm sure is not a bad thing. (laughs) Not at all. And uh, we spoke a little Klingon together, which was nice. I've heard so many good things about the way you interview and how your questions are amazing and you ask all the right questions. So good job, dude. (laughs) After I edit, it sounds awesome, right? Yeah. Okay. Seamlessly. So Jeff Stray commented, a good thing about our new website. He said, I like the new design of your website with the Quantum Leap theme playing in the background and the podcast episodes broken down into seasons. Very cool. Thank you. See, some people like it. Some people don't. Uh, I don't know. It's going to be okay. It's a, it's a website in flux. We're trying to get it fun and perfect and interactive and cool looking and modern. It has to be futuristic. It's Quantum Leap. Yeah, I want it to look like it would be in 1999. That would be so cool. <laughs> and this one's from Jonathan. And the following emails will be read by Juan. Hello, I really enjoyed the podcast and I'm listening to it as I rewatch the show. In your episode about So Help Me God, Albie expressed his opinion that people shouldn't have guns. While I disagree, I respect your right to have this opinion. Discussing gun control is a subject for a different time. I feel that you would do your listeners a service by bringing attention to www.projectchildsafe.org. They provide information about safe storage of firearms and child access prevention. They even can provide a free gun lock. While gun ownership is a hotly debated topic, safety is something that we can all agree on. I hope this information helps you, and I sincerely hope you share it with your listeners. Keep up the great show, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan, for your feedback, and thank you for uh, letting us know your opinion and in such a nice manner. And I did check out that link, and I did put that link on the So Help Me God episode page. So uh, you can check that out. Yes, we are all for safety. Yes. Thank you very much, Jonathan. This is from Leslie. Hello again. I just wanted to bring up a couple of points I didn't get a chance to mention earlier. First, I wanted to tell Heather that Sam was not mentioning Al's ex-wives during his, uh, I mean Jake's, hazing in the locker room. Though Tina was an obvious reference to Al's girlfriend. I actually considered listing their names and some of the stats that we seasoned leapers have come to know, but I decided against it. That whole don't want to be a snob thing, and I truly hope I wasn't. Second, I don't think that Sam felt betrayed when he finally spotted Al's picture on Beth's mantle. Rather, I think that while he might have been angry at first, it's more likely from the tone in his voice and the tears he was holding back that Sam felt the utter dread and sorrow of knowing how hard it was going to be to tell Al he couldn't help him and break his best friend's already broken heart. I completely agree with Hayden, though. When Sam said, Al, if you close that door, don't ever open it again. He meant it. 
Normally, I hate to be presumptuous, but I think it's a safe bet that anyone who reads this email knows full well that the bond between Sam and Al is forged out of a friendship that was meant to last for all time. Finally, I wanted to mention something that doesn't have anything to do with this heart-rending episode. Heather, if you're still wondering why the handling sounds like, as you put it, a screeching pterodactyl, you can thank Dean Stockwell for that. Whenever Albie gets a chance to interview him, of course. Hint, hint. When Quantum Leap first aired, Al's handling wasn't nearly as, well, vocal. But Dean's incredible flair for improvisation inspired him to treat it like an adversary, slapping it with the palm of his hand. It gave yet another layer to Al's character, too. After all, it's incredibly nerve-wracking to watch your best friend in a difficult, sometimes even life-or-death situation, knowing you can't physically intervene. All of that nervous energy has to be expressed, somehow. Anyway... It was that stroke of brilliance which prompted Don Belisario to eventually put in the sound effects we have all come to know and love. I was watching an interview with Dean that was conducted by someone named Scott Spears. How appropriate. And literally laughed out loud when Scott said that, in all of the years of television, he'd never seen anybody work with a prop with such hilarity and timing. I'll second that. Oh, I almost forgot. Columbo reference. Yes. Dean starred in a couple of episodes, not to mention The Twilight Zone, Bonanza, The A-Team, Murder, She, uh, sorry. Before I leap, I just wanted to say that I love what you've done with the website. It looks fantastic. Keep up the good work. Your friend in time, who perhaps needs to come up with her own signature sign-off, Leslie. Yay. So that's two pros and one con. You need to stop thinking about the negatives. <laughs> okay. So far, so good. Yes. I like it. Great comments. We love Leslie's insight into the episodes. I like that she said that it was just Sam imagining the heartbreak that his friend, he was going to have to break it to him that he couldn't help him. I like that. And the info about the hand link is pretty cool. Pretty cool. I want to watch that interview. This one's from Ben. So this is a question for Hayden. Why did they show Al leaping with Sam at the end of the show? Al is a hologram, right? Ben from Omaha, Nebraska. Well, since the question's for Hayden, let's let Hayden answer this. Hi, Ben. I actually don't think that Al does leap at the end of MIA. What happens is Al's in an imaging chamber, which has a hologram of Sam and everything around Sam projected around him. When Sam leaps, Al loses the connection to Sam's brainwaves. And so that means that the hologram around him would disappear. And so I guess that would mean that anyone who's seeing Al, in other words, us, to anyone who's seeing Al, it would seem like he's disappearing as well. And I suppose it just looks like a nice effect to have him disappear in blue like Sam does when he leaps. Thanks for the question, and I would love to hear everyone else's questions too, so keep them coming. Thank you, Hayden. Feel free to ask any of our crew questions, and we'll try to have them respond. This email's from Russell Bragg. Hello. I had promised myself not to write in until I was caught up, but I just had to write in before I forgot about what I wanted to say. I am on episode 25 right now, but I wanted to tell you that the Dragon Con 2014 Quantum Leap panel is one that I had heard before on another podcast, Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box. That is how I found out that there was a Quantum Leap podcast. Boy, was I happy when I found that out. I am thoroughly enjoyed and can't wait to catch up and hear your take on certain episodes. It is very unique to do a podcast where you have never viewed or read or know absolutely nothing about the subject going in. So Heather, I applaud you. I hope you continue to be unspoiled during the entire run and, uh, oh, uh, what's going on? I feel strange, like something's taking over my mind. Hello, Hello Heather. Heather. I am Zoman. 
and I have leapt into this person to spoil the ending of Quantum Leap. <laughs> yes, it is true. Sam Beckett walks out of the shower, and the entire run of Quantum Leap was just a dream. <laughs> uh, what happened? I must have blacked out. Better close for now. Next time I write, I will be caught up and I'll give my Quantum Leap history. Until then, thank you for keeping me entertained at work. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia. Host of the DC Comics Presents show. P.S. How do we know that when Sam leaps out and the other person leaps back in that they don't screw up what Sam has fixed? What are these jobs that people have that they listen to? Po- oh, I used to do that. I used to do that <laughs> and listen to podcasts all day at work unless my boss was there and then I'd have to do it sneakily and then she'd ask me to take my headphones out repeatedly. And then now I edit podcasts for a living, so I can't listen to the podcasts that I like while I'm editing other podcasts. I've tried. I just can't do it. Yeah, I used to listen while everyone else was asleep and the store was closed. I would listen to podcasts or audiobooks and... Now that I work normal people hours, I can't do that. But I'm glad that Russell still gets to listen to podcasts at work because, I mean, doesn't that make your job so much better when you can listen to a podcast, a Quantum Leap podcast at work? Come on. I used to love listening to the Quantum Leap podcast at work. He's not lying. (laughs) He's not. (laughs) Okay, so this one's from Barbara Noel. Dear Quantum Leap podcast people. I just wanted to say thank you for sharing with me and all your listeners slash fans of the podcast of this episode. I was especially impressed with Albie. Please forgive me since I don't know how to spell your name. I don't know if it was Albie with a Y, Albie, or Al space B. You can correct me so I will know it next time. I promise. But as I was saying, I was very impressed when you explained the thing about the previous episode with the Kamikaze Kid. I did not know why it was spelled that way until you explained it was because Sam's person he leapt into was named Cameron. That that is why he spelled it C-A-M-I-K-E-Z, kid. Thank you for enlightening me with that lesson. Sincerely appreciated. Also, Heather, I wanted to say thank you for letting me know about Woody Allen. I'm not really a fan of Mr. Woody Allen, so I would not have picked up on that kiss with history sort of thingy. I just saw the kid in this episode at the airport, and he said he just wanted to get the autograph. And his mother was like, you want an autograph? Here's an autograph. Smacks Woody Allen in the back of the head. I really do appreciate listening to the podcast. I learned so many things, and it is my favorite show. I mean, Quantum Leap, of course. And I love your podcast slash show. Keep up the great slash excellent work, please. I can't wait to get the next podcast. I would love it if I can continue to send email with my feedback for all the podcast episodes. Please. Sincerely and respectfully, yours, Barbara Noel. Thank you so much, Barbara. And it's spelled A-L-B-I-E. From what I understand, I got my nickname, because my real name's Albert, but everybody calls me Albie growing up my whole life, from a 1970s TV commercial about Albacore tuna and Albie being on the label, label, label. I have yet to see this whole ad campaign myself, but that's why they started calling me Albie. I want to say there's an Albie on like the Real Housewives of New Jersey or something too. I bumped into two Albies in my life and it's weird. Keep listening and keep sending feedback. You know, it'd be great if we had another feedback from her right now. Hey, we do. This email is all about our episode we did on Honeymoon Express. Dearest Quantum Leap Podcast. Firstly, nice touch to this episode. I like that you recorded this podcast episode while traveling on a train. I like train rides and I wish I was on one now too. A very nice sound of the train going on in the background. 
I wanted to mention to you the thing about the French Cross of Lorraine. If you recall, or didn't know this, on the show Magnum P.I., another show that was produced and created by Don Belisario, Tom Selleck was Magnum, and Magnum's friends Rick and TC also wore the ring with the French Cross of Lorraine. Perhaps there is some significance about that? I never heard of Looper, but I am a lover of time travel stories. So... I am likely to check it out. By the way, I own a copy of Somewhere in Time, costume designed by Mr. Jean-Pierre Dorliac, in case you didn't know, and it is a great time travel story. If you didn't see it before, I would recommend it. The thing with Sam and the glass of champagne was that I believe it was Sam, and not the guy he leapt into, that was speaking to Tom's wife about the reading of the bubbles. I was also very happy that we got to see and learn more about Sam with that. I wanted to thank you for sharing the interview you did with Miss Holly Fields. I think she is such an awesome, cool human being and a great friend of mine on Instagram. And I learned stuff about her through that interview. Thank you so much for that. Sincerely and respectfully, yours, Barbara Noel. Thanks again, Barbara. I do love Holly Fields. She's pretty awesome. We go back and forth on Instagram ourselves. It's it's pretty cool. Looper's great. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And of course, I've seen Somewhere in Time. I love all time travel movies, but that's a great one. And, uh, Hopefully, one day I'll get to talk about it with Mr. Dorliak. That would be great. Yeah, it would. Hint, hint. <laughs> Thanks, Barbara, so much. The newest time travel movie I would recommend would be Project Almanac. Check it out. I really dug that one. That was a good movie. Pretty crazy. Made my brain hurt a little bit. <laughs> As it should. A good time travel movie should make your brain hurt. Well, then, success. And this one is from Michael. Dear Heather and Albie, I have been steadily making my way through the Quantum Leap podcast since I met Albie on the anniversary panel at the Dragon Con 2014, and I am very impressed. Quantum Leap is one of my favorite shows of all time, and your show is the perfect tribute with a great balance between the views of series newbies and the passion of a longtime fan. Listening to Heather's journey makes me smile at every turn as she discovers new wrinkles in the mythology and looks forward to what's to come. I almost envy the position you are in, Heather, because what lies ahead is magical. I also want to congratulate the podcast crew and fans for not spoiling the upcoming seasons for new fans. It's hard not to talk about this show, but it's great to see new fans coming to the series. Keep up the great work, and if I can lend a hand in any way, please let me know. Michael Faulkner. Wow, that's great that you're listening. I really think that's cool. It was great meeting you at DragonCon. I love doing that panel. And if you haven't heard the panel yet, check it out. It's on our feed and on our website. It's worth a listen, and I had a great time doing it. So I might take you up on that offer, Michael, of helping us out. We could always use more help at the QLP. Thanks a lot. Ah, and we got a new email from Aaron. Another fantastic episode of Quantum Leap and another pre-letter. But before I begin, a few comments on your guys' coverage of MIA. As far as Heather and her comments about Al being selfish for wanting Beth to wait for him, sadly, I have to agree with her. While I understand Al's thoughts, it was selfish of him expecting Beth to wait and not know if he's dead or alive. As I said last time, this was a series of episodes that were the best by far. Comments on the episode, The Leap Home, Part 1. This episode was a month before my birth, December 24th, 1969. Sam gets to use his own name, not just his first name, but entire name. I think it's interesting that Sam played both himself and his father, Peach Cobbler. I'm not a fan, but both Sam and Al are, or so it seems. Al thinking about sex, as usual, the mind of an adult in the body of a 16-year-old. Sam there to help his team win the game, something I'm sure a lot of sport players have wished for. I wasn't a big sports guy, so that part didn't hit home with me, but the other part of the episode, changing the past to save his brother, hits very close to home. 
Sam wanting to save his father, sister, and brother from their futures, very moving and personal. I think it's good that they referenced the last episode with Beth marrying that nozzle lawyer, but sad to see she still married the nozzle. Speaking of the previous episode, Al is looking much better this leap. Looks like he got some rest. Sam bringing modern slang to 69. Love it. And the part where Sam gets done singing to his sister and she breaks down crying, it always makes me tear up. And then when Al tells Sam that he's lucky to get extra time with his family, sorry. Too much dust in the room right now. Anyway, great episode. Looking forward to the next one. Aaron, Brotherhead, Moss. I'm so glad you're sticking with us, Aaron, and great observations and great comments. Thank you so much. Peach Cobbler. I'm looking forward to having it this Thanksgiving. Not a fan of peach pie. I like peaches. I like frozen peach. I like peach ice cream. Hmm. But peach cobbler. I like apple cobbler because that's close to apple pie. My two favorites are apple pie and pumpkin pie. Ooh, pumpkin cobbler. I think I got off the subject. But thanks, Aaron. Ah, a new one from Leslie. Hello, Albie and Heather. You should probably finish watching The Leap Home Parts 1 and 2 before you read this. Where do I even begin with this monumental episode? Actually, before I start, I have to thank you for welcoming me into the fold and for the encouragement you extended towards me during the feedback portion of the podcast. This may sound a little silly, but I was rather sleep-deprived when I wrote my first email, so I was worried about being too long-winded. I'd also like to apologize in advance in case I come off as seeming like a quantum leap snob. There are a few theories which you, Albie and Heather, touched upon during the episode recap that I respectfully disagree with. I've always tried to state an opposing opinion politely, but I also have the tendency to express said opposition vehemently. Also, if I comment on something either of you initially said, but then recanted, I'm sorry for that as well. Hell, I've only listened to this particular episode recap twice so far, so it's quite possible that I didn't catch everything. Jeez Louise, as Al would say. I sound a bit like Heather did when she voiced her trepidation at the beginning of this podcast. So before I get into some of my amical objections, I wanted to tell you that, like you, Albie, I too regard this heart-rending season finale as one of my own personal memories. No matter how many times I see it, I cannot imagine watching M.I.A. without crying. As you put it, Albie, this is the definitive Dean Stockwell episode. While I can't say that I knew from the first time I watched M.I.A. on TV that Dean was putting himself into an incredibly personal and painful place to give us that exemplary performance, I will say that knowing it now makes me appreciate what he does even more than I did when I first discovered Quantum Leap in my late teens. In fact, I didn't know the extent of Dean's methods until I saw that YouTube video, a clip from a 1987 interview in which he said that in order to play a character who is extremely overwrought, he had to draw upon real emotion. It's that same skill, that same instinct, which turned him from an unforgettable child star into the brilliant actor he is today. Moreover, it explains why, no matter what part Dean is cast to play, you can be damn sure his character believes every word he says. I get chills when I watch Dean as Cylon John Cavill express his contempt, with bone-chilling conviction for the limitations of his human form. Naturally, I had to mention one of his roles in Battlestar Galactica sooner or later. I think it's safe to say the final scenes in M.I.A. are the most heartbreaking, especially taking Dean's history as an actor into account. What drove that point even further home for me was listening to Albie's interviews with Don Belisario and Deborah Pratt. They certainly put the last scene into perspective. From this day forward, whenever I watch this episode and arrive tearfully at the part where Al sorrowfully whispers, Oh Sam, why did you make me do this? I will always think of that line as Dean's lament to both Don and Deborah for writing what was an incredibly difficult episode for him. 
By the same token, I also think that there was so much more to Sam's inability to look at Al than what was written in the script. Maybe I, like Beth, am too much of a romanticist, but the final scenes between these two amazing men were so palpable that I honestly believe it was Scott Bakula himself who felt the need to turn away from his co-star. It won't be the last time this happens in the series either. This, of course, is due in no small part to Scott's own unwavering ability as a truly gifted actor, and this sentiment actually leads me to my first disagreement. Heather, you commented that you thought Sam was awkward during this entire episode. I feel, rather, that like Albie said, Sam knew deep in his very soul that something about this leap wasn't right. As close as they are to one another, even with a Swiss-cheesed brain, Sam could tell that his best friend was keeping something from him, and Scott portrayed that sense of confusion perfectly. At the risk of stating the obvious, I don't think Sam's interactions with Beth, Dirk, and especially Al would have fit the tone of the episode if Scott had portrayed Sam the same way he did in Seabride. Speaking of Swiss-cheesed, I feel like I must point out to the two of you that you frequently use this expression incorrectly. The term applies to the holes left in Sam's memory when he leaps, not the residual part of a leapy's personality which, by the way, he doesn't exhibit until season 3 through 5. This is another aspect to Sam's character that I believe you have misinterpreted. This is also where my aforementioned apology comes in. Now to the part I'm actually nervous about mentioning. Personally, I think the phrase, you chose war over your wife, is every bit as insensitive as Sam using the phrase more important to describe the scenario involving Skaggs. Please believe me, I don't want to turn this into a political discussion, especially considering that the Vietnam War has been hotly debated since the 1960s. But anyone who's ever served in any branch of the military will tell you it's not as cut and dry as you made Al's tours of duty sound. Al was a naval officer, a pilot who, like Sam's brother Tom, a Navy SEAL, had taken an oath to serve his country. I'm not condoning war in any way, shape, or form, especially that one, but in all honesty, I didn't care for the phrasing of that particular point. That doesn't mean that I disagree with what you both said about how hard this was on Beth. As horribly as Al suffered for six years at the hands of the VC, it was just as difficult for Beth to come home every night to an empty house, not knowing if her husband was dead or alive. Again, please note that I mean no disrespect. I just feel that particular point could have been conveyed a little better. That said, I was happy to hear that the consensus of this episode recap was that there was no actual bad guys in the main storyline. I hope this isn't too spoilery, but Al will express his feelings regarding Vietnam in Season 5. A little closer to home, pun intended, Heather, is this little teaser. Keep an eye out for that purple outfit of Al's in Season 3. He will be wearing it while conveying some extremely touching sentiments about the most important relationship in his life. And that's all I'm going to say about that for now. Another crown jewel, to paraphrase what Hayden said, courtesy of the one and only Dean Stockwell. There's so much more I wanted to say, but I think I've taken enough of your time, and my Ziggy, or PC, is acting hinky, to quote Al and also Abby Shudo of NCIS. Thanks for listening, and I can't wait to hear Albie's interview with our timeless superhero, Scott Bakula. Your friend in time, Leslie. Thank you so much, Leslie. A lot of good points, and I understand your opinion. I really do. I appreciate you writing in and letting us know how you feel. I'm sure a lot of listeners feel that way. And uh, keep writing in. I really enjoy reading your emails. Thank you so much. All right. So that wraps it up for our emails. So um, do we have any iTunes reviews? And we have some iTunes reviews. So this is from Fozzie2j from the UK. Oh boy, what a joy. I actually just rewatched this series recently after seeing it back in the day and after finding out about this podcast by accident on Twitter. Someone retweeted you. I'm now going through it once more. Great show and keep up the fine work. 
Thank you, Fozzie2j. I wonder if uh, he likes Y2J and Fozzie. Maybe. Maybe. I do too. Navid Moazis, hopefully I'm saying that right, from Sweden, said, great podcast, very good podcast with great hosts. Can't wait to listen in more soon. Keep up the awesome work. Thank you very much from Sweden. I want to go to Sweden. I want to go everywhere. Let's just travel. Almost everywhere. (laughs) None of those scary ones, but the nice ones. The nice ones. The ones they go to on Amazing Race. (laughs) This one's from Mike Stone, 1961 from Australia. Love this old show. Hi, guys. Thanks for bringing back some great memories. Thank you for leaving some feedback. I really appreciate it. Please, everyone, if you haven't left us iTunes reviews yet, please do so. Give us a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. So if you like us, five-star reviews, please. Thank you so much. There are many ways. How many? Many (laughs) ways to leave feedback. You can go to... Our website, our brand newly designed website. That some people like. That (laughs) most of us like at quantumleappodcast.com. You can send us email and MP3s or Ogvorbis or any audio format you'd like to quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can visit us on Facebook and check out our Facebook community at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. We're on Twitter at quantumleappod. And on Instagram at quantumleappodcast. Also, if you guys are on Twitter and you want to reach out to either Albie or me personally, you can reach us at Albert Burge for Albie and at Heather Burge for me. Check us out. Follow us and uh, we post weird stuff that has nothing to do with Quantum Leap sometimes. I don't even, yeah, I don't even know what I posted on Twitter last. <laughs> but I'm there. I'm there if you, if you want to reach out. We have some awesome patrons. Tom Quinn and Donald Summerlin, thank you very much for your support in our show. And if you'd like to support the Quantum Leap podcast and everything we do, or maybe not everything we do, but at least the show, um, go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast for more details on that. For as little as a dollar an episode, that's a fifth of a cup of coffee, you can support the podcast you love. I would love to just gift someone a fifth of a cup of coffee. <laughs> that would be an espresso, right? Um, I think those are more expensive. <laughs> Oh, it's very confusing. But anyway, <laughs> check us out on Patreon. Thank you so much. You know who I haven't heard from yet? Hayden. Hayden. It is. It seems time for Hayden's segment. Yeah. There's a uh, chill in the air. It's getting kind of cold in here. The cold never bothered me anyway. Hey, Leapers. Welcome to season two of Quantum Deep, which is what we finally decided to call my segment. It's funny how you can listen to a song and it can remind you of something completely unrelated. Sometimes a song can even be a completely perfect theme song for a completely different situation. For me, this happened when listening to the Oscar-winning song Let It Go from Disney's Frozen. If one mentally snips out the parts about coming to terms with having ice powers, the sentiments expressed by Elsa, who was voiced by the jaw-droppingly brilliant Edina Menzel, 
the sentiments are pretty much identical to those expressed by Sam in The Leap Home Part 1. Let's take a close look at some of the lyrics. A kingdom of isolation and it looks like I'm the queen. Well, in Sam's case, king. In the Quantum Leap universe, Dr. Samuel Beckett is the only person in the world who has been able to travel through time. And so there literally is not anyone else who can understand his situation. And even if there were, Sam was the first. So he would be the one elevated to the level of guide, mentor, counsellor, king. There would still not be anybody who could do the same for Sam, at least until that person had the experience to be considered a peer. And in the time that takes, who knows how much psychological turmoil and damage Sam could endure that would have to go untreated. The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I've tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good boy you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Sam always has to keep up appearances, pretending to be the person whose aura surrounds him in order to complete his missions. Even on a standard leap, where Sam doesn't have a deep personal connection to the people whose lives he has entered in to help, he still always has to do everything he can to make sure these people end up having a better life, unable to ever show or even acknowledge the stress that he's put under. Sam has to be perfect, a perfect actor, and perfect at everything he executes. Depending on the mission, lives could even depend on it. And what happens when you continually bottle things up? Eventually the bottle gets overfilled, and what happens when it can't handle the pressure anymore? It explodes. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say, let the storm rage on, the cold never bothered me anyway. It had been established much earlier in the series that when creating Project Quantum Leap, Sam himself realised the risks of the Leaper altering his or her own past. It could put the project, and even the Leaper's own life or destiny, in jeopardy. The committee understood this as well, which is why, especially in the beginning of the series, they upheld the rules as best they could. Even firing Al for giving Sam classified information, which he then used for his own agenda, which was trying to reunite the love of his life, Donna Elise, with her father, to give her some closure about him leaving and to help her get over her fear of abandonment. This was done in the hopes that eventually Donna would choose to marry Sam. What The Leap Home Part 1 did brilliantly is it reminded us that Sam is human. As Al says, Sam has a lot of Boy Scout in him, driven to help people and always do what is right. But Sam is not perfect. He is selfish at times. We saw this in Catch a Falling Star. He didn't want to leave Nicole, another woman he loved in his life, and so was actually considering not saving the star from falling so that Sam wouldn't leap. Again, in this episode, we see Sam considering not attempting his mission to help the high school win the championship game because he doesn't want to leave his family home. Again, we see Sam is willing to sacrifice the happiness of his teammates and the good they could do Al had projected that many of them would go on to great things if they'd won the basketball scholarships, just so that he could enjoy more time with his family. Ultimately, Sam's conscience kicked in, but it did show that Sam is more three-dimensional than your usual protagonist and hero. But since Sam's mission didn't really have anything to do with his family, maybe it would have been kinder for Sam 
to not leap into his own life in the past. There's no reason he couldn't have leapt into one of the other players on Sam's team and completed the same mission. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let's also remember that when Sam tries to save the lives of his father and brother and stop his sister from entering an abusive marriage, he is actually breaking the rules of the project that he himself put in place to not use his position as time traveller to alter the course of his own life. Even though the Project Quantum Leap committee is more likely a lot more liberal with the enforcement of the rules under the chair of Diane McBride than it had been under Weitzman, one has to wonder just how much Sam actually can get away with without any consequence. I feel for Al, as the liaison between the goings-on of the project and the committee, probably having to justify every move that Sam makes, just so the project will continue to be funded. But Sam is not afraid of the committee anymore, knowing that it is God or time or fate or whatever that is leaping him around. And the knowledge that the committee doesn't do anything besides be a rubber stamp for the checks anyway. And in a way, with all the good that he has done, Sam has earned the right to some happiness. And it's obvious that his family is Sam's happiness. So why shouldn't he try to save the people he loves? Let it go, let it go. I'm one with the wind and sky. Let it go, let it go. You'll never see me cry. Here I stand and here I'll stay. Let the storm rage on. When hearing this phrase sung, all that goes through my head is the vision of Sam in tears, running off into the cornfield, realising that Al is right and that he's not able to do anything to change the lives of his family. And one thought crystallises like an icy blast. I'm never going back. The past is in the past. This is another surprisingly apt sentence for the situation at hand in this episode, mostly because of the fact that Sam's situation makes the phrase, the past is in the past, have a completely different double meaning. Usually that sentence would mean that what has already happened can never be changed and you just have to accept it. In the Quantum Leap universe, at least at this stage, Sam is the only person who actually does have the ability to travel into the past and change things for the better. So this would mean if he was to say the past is in the past, it actually has a much darker double meaning. It would mean that he's making the choice not to do anything to change bad things that have happened. And so for someone as inherently moral and selfless as Sam is, it's shocking and heartbreaking to see. Let it go, let it go, when I'll rise like the break of dawn. Let it go, let it go, that perfect boy is gone. Here I stand in the light of day, let the storm rage on, the cold never bothered me anyway. When the song Let It Go is juxtaposed against Sam's personal anguish during the Leap Home Part 1, the only thing that does not make any literal sense are the parts of the song which directly reference Elsa coming to terms with her cryokinesis. In other words, her ice powers. But it's also somewhat poetic if not extremely dark, if one takes those references as a metaphor for Sam's heart getting colder, no longer getting any satisfaction out of his life's work and willing to throw in the towel, despite knowing deep down that he is the only person who can do it. His line, why can I save strangers and not the people I love? I'm not doing it anymore. I quit, gives me chills. He does make a very good point too. Nobody should be off limits to be helped. 
but there are some things that just aren't meant to be. It was the things that happened in Sam's past which turned him into the person he is today. Perhaps it was living through Tom's death which taught him that sometimes bad things happen to good people. Maybe it was even this event which made him subconsciously want to travel in time to put right what once went wrong. Perhaps it was living through his father's premature death from a heart attack which gave Sam the drive to study to be a medical doctor. The skills which in turn he has utilised to save numerous lives. Perhaps it was Katie's marriage to Chuck, who, on the outside, seemed like a decent human being, while really being an abusive alcoholic who would badly beat her, which prompted Sam to build his uncanny ability to read people. A skill which would prove invaluable when leaping into unfamiliar situations and having to make decisions at a moment's notice. Imagine if Sam had grown up with different experiences, building different attitudes and a different set of skills. Would he have been able to help as many people as he had and still could? I would argue he probably couldn't. One more thing that bothers me about Sam's attitude in The Leap Home Part 1, and maybe it's just because the episode does immediately follow MIA, although there's no reason to believe that Sam hasn't had many leaps in between, but it feels like Sam is learning the exact same lessons that he was preaching to Al in the previous episode, how some things just aren't meant to be. How rules are rules and they have to be followed. How intervening might make the present lives of their loved ones more painful. What is unbelievable is that Sam either seems to have forgotten these lessons or else simply doesn't care about them. And when we remember just how hurt Sam was at being used by Al to try and save his marriage, it really does make me feel for Al this time. Because either Sam doesn't care enough to think about his best friend's feelings or worse, he does realise and simply doesn't care about them. In this case, Sam is either unfeeling or he's a hypocrite. So this is why I'm glad that it's actually Al who puts Sam back in his place. And the fact that he remains so cool about it in the process makes me respect Al even more. Al is the one that reminds Sam they'd gone through an almost identical situation with Beth and that that just wasn't meant to be. He also tells Sam that it is damn fair that he gets a chance to spend just a little bit more time with his departed loved ones and tell them that he loves them. I think if I was in Al's situation, seeing Sam being so selfish, I'd probably be a lot more scathing. But I think this also shows that finally, both a few days and a full 30 years after it happened, that Al has finally accepted his fate without the love of his life and is now moving on. He himself says that it wasn't meant to be. If Al still had resentment, then he probably would have shown a lot more anger towards Sam in his fit of selfishness. Without being too spoilery, there is even more character development for Al in part two of The Leap Home. It could even be argued that when shown back to back with MIA, the three episodes form a trilogy with the overarching story of Al moving on with his life. In fact, now I think about it, maybe I was mistaken and Let It Go isn't Sam's anthem for this episode. Maybe it's actually ours. Well, considering I am total Disney advocate and a big Frozen fan, as well as my daughter, I'm totally in support of Hayden's segment this time. I'm a big fan, Hayden, of your Let It Go segment. 
as I was listening to that, I'm thinking to myself, this is profound. How did he ever connect the two and it be so perfect? He probably had the song stuck in his head like we do while he was watching the episode and put it all together. I don't know, but great job, Hayden. Thanks a lot. Calling all writers. Do you have an original Quantum Leap story that you want to share with fellow leapers? Well, now's your chance. Announcing the Quantum Leap Podcast's short fiction contest. I don't control my future. You do. You heard it from Sam himself. Help Dr. Beckett leap from life to life, trying to put right what once went wrong. We're looking for your original Quantum Leap adventures about Sam, Al, Ziggy, Gushy, Donna, Beth, Leapers, Leapies, anyone or anything, as long as it's set in the established Quantum Leap universe. Here are some ground rules. We're looking for original stories that haven't appeared anywhere in print or online. Keep it to 5,000 words or less. We're not looking for your unpublished novel here. Email submissions to quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And you can go to the Quantum Leap Podcast website for more details. The first eight participants will get a small prize. And the top three entries, as judged by the Quantum Leap Podcast team, will receive an autographed copy of my Quantum Leap novel, Foreknowledge. Winning stories will be read on the podcast. So what are you waiting for? Hop into the accelerator chamber and make the leap. Enter the Quantum Leap Podcast Short Fiction Contest now. Heather, do you have any news for us? Well, I don't know if you guys have been following our Twitter feed, but there was a Cozy TV marathon, and it looks like Cozy TV is going to be airing Quantum Leap. So the series premiered on May 27th on Cozy TV, and it's going to be Wednesday nights and Saturday nights. So that's pretty awesome. Very cool. I love the marathon. I followed along, and I was tweeting like a bird. Is that (laughs) that where that tweeting thing comes from? I think. (laughs) So I really enjoyed that. And we had a fun discussion the whole time everyone was watching Quantum Leap. So uh, it's great that it's always airing because, of course, we have our DVDs and such. But it's it's nice to have it all on the same time and we can all watch it together. Yeah, it's like a big party or something. It was hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, which was really cool. I like him. He's cool. Yeah, he had some cool insights. Uh, I like him. I like everything he does. He's pretty cool. Smart guy. Yeah. Did you see Scott Bakula's on TV Guide magazine? I know. How cool is that? And everyone I know that knew I was talking to Scott Bakula said, did you know he's on TV Guide right now and you're going to talk to him? I was like, yes, this is pretty awesome. Yeah, we totally bought a copy. How could we not? Good article, too. Uh, they didn't mention the Quantum Leap podcast. I was hoping. <laughs> they did mention Quantum Leap a little bit because in every Scott Bakula interview, they have to mention Quantum Leap, I think. Yeah, it's pretty iconic. That was the first TV guide I bought in over a decade, so hopefully the sales went up when he was on the cover. (laughs) As they should. So I'm pretty excited. I'm sure you've heard, Albie, but we got nominated, us, the Quantum Leap Podcast, and for our audio drama, The Impossible Dream, along with Thinking Outside the Long Box, got nominated for the Parsec Awards. Yay! That's pretty cool. If we win, we'll have to have Tawny or Kevin Batchelder accept the award for us. (laughs) well it would be really cool to win for best non-story podcast we tell a story but i don't think we're a story podcast i think that's something different i don't even know what a story podcast is long ago in a century far far away can we start doing that no we can start doing that heather do you have any trivia yes i do when the title and date are shown for the leap home november 25th 1969 in the background 
It's the farm and the baseball diamond from Field of Dreams. Ah, maybe that's why he had a baseball diamond in his backyard. (laughs) That's why Sam Beckett is so good at baseball. Yeah. Or they just use stock shots from Field of Dreams. Probably that. Apparently, someone else thought that David Newsom and Scott Bakula looked enough alike that they they played brothers on Men of a Certain Age. That was a good episode. And there was a gorilla mask in that episode as well. Maybe that's his thing. Maybe like it comes with David Newsom and he's like, you have to incorporate this mask into this episode. Maybe. Hopefully uh, we'll find out more when I talk to him. This is the big one. I guess he made a boo-boo on the Raisin Bran box that was in the episode. It's totally a 1990s version of the Raisin Bran box, not the 1969 version. I think back then they had one scoop of plump juicy raisins, not two. We need more sugar in our cereal now. Love Raisin Bran. Me too. I like Raisin Bran Crunch. I don't know what that is. It's raisin bran with little like granola clusters in it. Uh, that's complicated. It's At least delicious. they didn't have that on the table. <laughs> they did it a little bit differently during the credits this time. They have an alternate angle of Sam playing Imagine to Katie during the credits. That is really nice. I think that's the best part of the episode, probably, so it's good that they reprise that for the credits. Yeah, definitely a good part of the episode. I love when Scott sings. So I guess in the wide angle shots of the corn stalks, they're moving in the wind and blowing back and forth, but close-ups, they're perfectly still. But I guess that makes sense. I mean, you wouldn't want to be in a windy environment when you're filming up yeah, close. Yeah, be an audio nightmare. You'd have to loop everything. <laughs> yeah, I've been there in a cornfield <laughs> trying to get good audio. It does not work. It does not work. <laughs> I'm trying to picture what you would be recording in a cornfield. I don't even want to know. It was a cutaway segment for my new talk show, Bedtime with Bruce. Check it out at bedtimewithbruce.com. Something we talk about on every episode of the Quantum Leap podcast is whether Sam is really there in person or if he is in the body of the person that is really there. There are many different opinions <laughs> on that subject. Even Scott Bakula has one, as you heard earlier. But in this episode, Al mentions having a mature brain in a 16-year-old's body, basically. And if that's how that works, then we've been wrong. So, I don't know. According to Mr. Belisario and Deborah and Scott, eh. Yeah, so we have no idea. Yeah. There really wasn't a rule. Not really. Just whatever worked well in that episode. Which is exactly what Mr. Thompson said. And even Netflix and TV Guide and all these other things get it wrong. They always say in the body. So either the fans are wrong or the synopsizers are wrong or nobody really knows. I'm going to be a synopsizer just because it (laughs) sounds cool. No one really knows. Uh, I think we all have our opinions and it doesn't really matter. I was just about to say, does it really? Because it doesn't really change much. I mean, if someone came out and said, this is the concrete, this is how it was, would it really change your opinion of the show? No. Okay. See? I told Hayden while we were talking earlier this week that he is the foremost expert for the technical workings of Quantum Leap. I like that. He, he said it's a lot of pressure. But I mean, <laughs> who else but Hayden? Yeah. He is perfect for the job. This episode won an Emmy for makeup. I'm assuming for Scott Bakula as his father. I think it was the beauty makeup for the mother. No. <laughs> or do, or no nose is no nose. Yeah, piece of gum on a guy's nose. <laughs> I won an award. It was a piece of gum, dude. But whatever. No, it was definitely for Scott's old age makeup to portray his father. 
<laughs> piece of gum on his nose. Just just keep him moving. Keep the camera moving or keep him moving. Nobody will pause it. It's a piece of gum on his nose. But the old age makeup is amazing. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Michael Watkins also won an Emmy. It was actually his second consecutive Emmy for The Leap Home Part 1 and Part 2. As well he should, again. The director of photography is very responsible for how the overall show looks, and he's doing a great job. Oh, yeah. So it's cool that Quantum Leap was recognized in its time. So there's some continuity errors. Um, There's some hand continuity errors of John Beckett at the breakfast table. Which is understandable because of the way the filming process was done with Scott Bakula, first half of the day being his father, second half of the day being Sam Beckett. Yeah, I think we'll let that one slide. Yeah. You don't really notice it until you notice it. I totally didn't notice it. So it worked. And a little tidbit of information. Harriet the Cow is named after Harriet Margulies, who was Don Belisario's assistant. She is a lovely person. Like, hey, I like you, so I'm going to name the cow after you. I don't know how I'd feel It's fun about just that. to put names in there, yeah. I think. Everything I write has Albie as every name. I also want to add this little bit from Chris. And we have a little audio clip from Chris DeFilippis talking about an old radio in this episode. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings, a new bit of trivia I'm introducing to the Quantum Leap podcast. I've collected old radios for years, and one of my little games is to spot and identify old radios in movies and TV shows. But Quantum Leap gave me an excuse to bring my insanity to a new level. Since Quantum Leap is a time travel show, not only do I look for old radios, but I check to see if they're appropriate to the year Sam has leapt into. So from here on out, if an old radio shows up on Quantum Leap, I'm going to identify it, determine if it even existed in the year Sam has found himself in, and tell you a little bit about it. Let's begin with the Leap Home Part 1. Leap date, November 25th, 1969. There is an old radio in the Leap Home, and it's a beauty. A 1942 Zenith 6629 or 6644. So it's obviously period appropriate. You can see this radio over John's shoulder in the initial barn scene. It pops up again later when Sam is sweeping out the stalls. The Zenith 6629 is nothing less than an Art Deco masterpiece. It's a tabletop model with a sculpted wooden cabinet, an iconic speaker grill, and a distinctive boomerang-shaped dial. Zenith used the boomerang dial in several wooden and Bakelite tabletop models in 1942, and then seemingly abandoned the design. The result is that these unique sets are highly collectible. I sure want one. You can see the Zenith 6629 in all of its deco glory, and every other radio featured thus far on Quantum Leap, on my website at deflipside.com. Just click on the Quantum Leap podcast link and look for the radio dial. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Thank you, Chris. That was great trivia about that radio. Hopefully uh, those keep coming. I love old radios, and me and him spoke at length one night about our old radio collections. It's really cool. I can't wait till we find a radio that's totally not supposed to be in that time. Yeah, like a 1980s boombox in the middle of the 60s. Be pretty funny. I think the closest we'll get is uh, by a couple years. Yeah, probably. Thank you very much, Chris. That was pretty cool. So now we know everything we need to know about the radio that was in the Leap Home. Now I want one. Of course you do. I like old radios. I like old-time radio. So I like listening to my old-time radio through old radios with Bluetooth and stuff. Albie is a collector of old things. Like typewriters and Except for my record players. Yeah, I'm not old. <laughs> 
One thing I wanted to talk about is The Leap Home. Is it The Leap Home or The Leap Home Part 1? I see it referred to as both in different places, but the main title card for the episode says The Leap Home. So I'm going with The Leap Home. My belief on that is they didn't want people to know there was a part two. Because then it would be like, well, it's going to be continued. And so I would say it was The Leap Home originally. And now it can be referred to as The Leap Home Part 1 because people know there's a Leap Home Part 2. Because like the writers knew there was going to be a part two, but the audience didn't know until the end. Unless they had a TV guide. Well. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess we could go either way with that. Part one or just the Leap Home. Yeah. Part two is definitely part two. Right. So are you excited for the Leap Home Part B? (laughs) It looks like it's called Vietnam. I feel like it's just going to be sad and I'm dreading. I'm kind of dreading it. I think it's going to be an interesting episode because I love stories that revolve around Sam and Al. Don't think it's going to be a happy one, though. It's like, I don't see that ending well because his brother's going to die. It's war. Like, there's there's no, like, positive. This is going to be slapstick funny. I mean, and usually I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong this time. Unless there's, like, comedy hour. I don't think so. I think the only... Vietnam comedy was Good Morning Vietnam. Right. So probably not a happy-go-lucky episode. Three in a row. I don't know if I can handle it. It's a good episode, but not fun. <laughs> so, so yay. So you're looking forward to it, right? Yeah, I can't wait. Well, it's it's the end of the trilogy, so you get to find out how it all ends. They all die. It's really so happy. Whatever it takes to save my brother's life. Technically, you're not here to save your brother. Don't give me that crap, Al. What, do you want me to lie to you? I'll tell you the truth so at least you know what you're up against. You are a Sigelman second class Herbert Williams, but your buddies all call you... Magic. You think I'm their talisman? You are. They haven't taken a casualty since you came aboard. Until tomorrow. Until tomorrow. Tomorrow, your brother Tom is killed. And I'm not here to change that? How I got the info isn't important. What I do with it is... I'm a photojournalist, Magic. There's not a good journalist who wouldn't sell their soul for a Pulitzer. Since your mission tomorrow is Pulitzer material, I want you to tell your Lieutenant Beckett that you've got that magic feeling about me. People hate I know. But uh, any hole around here over three feet deep fills with water. But you know, you, you made a promise. Don't you think you ought to try and keep it? I got a mission to leave. Now, are you sure about Maggie? I just take my life on it. Good, because that's what you'll be doing. Staking your life on it, Magic. And ours. Some fun things. Tia Carrera's in the episode. I like her from Lilo and Stitch. She plays... Nani. Nani. And Joe from Family Guy. I like him, too. He's awesome. He's got a good voice. It's going to be a good episode, right? I feel like he's in everything. He is. Every, every, definitely everything animated. Yes. So that's a lot to look forward to, and I'm excited for the Leap Home Part 2. I'm bitterly not excited, but I want to see what happens. Does that make sense? (laughs) David Newsom, Tom's in it again, and he's going to be on our show, and Andrea Thompson will be on the show as well. So I'm looking forward to having those two guests. How exciting. Very exciting. So until next time, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And you have been listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast Part 1. And happy birthday, Albie. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Albert Burge and Heather Burge. 
with contributions from Hayden McQueenie, Jill Arroway, Suzanne Smiley, and Christopher DeFilippis. Go to quantumleappodcast.com for all your Quantum Leap podcast needs. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for special behind-the-scenes content and to find out when a new episode is available. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanis, and Juan Murrow, with voice talent provided by John Buchanis, Juan Murrow, Hayden McQueenie, Tawny Fenneran, Suzanne Smiley, Mac Jackson, and Peter Vernasak. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Murrow and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production. And welcome back to Quantum Leap, where it's always 1993 because that's the only time they released a Quantum Leap calendar. <laughs> what day is it today in 1993? Tuesday. <laughs> I have no idea. I have it open to January just because it's the first picture. I don't think it's January right now. It's more likely June. February. I'm not going to check right now, but I, th- I think it's June. I think it's Tuesday in 1993. I like that. That was exactly what I was looking for. I asked you. I like that he says he's as healthy as an American. <laughs> can be. <coughs> Sorry. That he's as healthy as an American can be. I always do the right thing. It was a triple. It's okay. Belt, book fell. <laughs> scared the crap out of me because who else is out here? Yeah, the book fell down. Because I just moved Liberace. Literally had a heart attack, buddy. Not literally, figuratively. I figuratively had a, It's harder to say that. Really? I figuratively had a heart attack. Like, you can't. But if you do say that, then people. But now I feel flustered because, like, someone was trying to kill me just a second ago. It was Liberace with the Tribble. (laughs) In the library. (laughs) (laughs) In the library. (laughs) More evil laughter here, Albie, because I have a horrible evil laugh. Oh, <laughs> my